jealous of me Cause I'm so famous And awesome at Quidditch Just remember that time That we took you to Slughorn's office And you nearly drank yourself to death But I saved your Welcome back to Parfic Weekly. This is Ryan. Hey, I'm Lady Chi. Hey, Ryan. And I'm Phil, coming to you through the magic of pre-recorded voicemail. You ever get the feeling you can really just phone it in on this show? Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't really even have to be here to participate in a discussion. You can just mail in your thoughts. <laughs> although, although, to be fair, to be fair, Phil adopted, you know, like a baby, and he's got kids, and he's got a mortgage. He's got a life, and... That's the problem. Phil has a life, and Rinna too has a life, but Rinna lives in the woods. And there's <laughs> trees surrounding the woods, and there's mountains surrounding the trees. So basically, Rinna mails her thoughts in, you know, when she records them, and I get them a week and a half later, and we can time delay her into the show. <laughs> yes. She has to send him in snail mail. She does. There's actually a snail, and she actually duct tapes them to the snail and pushes the snail down the river and hopes the snail finds somebody who knows me. You know, that wouldn't have surprised me in the early days of Potterfic Weekly. <laughs> oh my god, the early days of Potterfic Weekly. I forget if I said this in the last episode, but I actually downloaded our first six episodes. For whatever reason, I didn't have them on my computer and figured if the server ever burned down, I should probably have those. Yeah, like as backup. Yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes I take a cross-country trip and I just listen to myself talk about, you know, after the end. So I downloaded them and I listened to the first two episodes and... I am so sorry. <laughs> We're all sorry. I wasn't even here. <laughs> oh my god. I guess I don't have to apologize. I wasn't here. <laughs> I wasn't familiar with how computers worked. What do you want from me? Oh, you got good at it though. And then you informed um, me how to do it and you spend most of your time cleaning up after me. So it works out well. This is true. <laughs> the Lady She edited episodes are collector's editions. <laughs> I'm listening to her completed cut, and there's like 30 seconds of Phil hacking up a lung, and Jen goes to the bathroom, and it's all in this. <laughs> I'm like, I see what she was doing here. I like what she was going for with, you know, the departure of, you know, okay. <sighs> that, was, that was just keeping it real, yo, because I'm like that. I'm like... That's just keeping it real, yo? <laughs> You're from Kansas. I know, that's why it's funny. <laughs> I'm a white girl from Kansas. You don't even want to know the conversation she and I were having beforehand about cows. And we don't even let them have sex anymore. We do um, in vitro fertilization. You stop them from having sex? Mm-hmm. How do you do, how do, you do that? Uh, you keep the bulls in one pen and you keep the cows in the other. They must hate you. Mm, well, it all works out. Yeah. Not really, because the, the bulls still get off. That's all I care about. <laughs> You're like, oh, God. <laughs> and, and, and the girl cows are just unfulfilled. But I don't like cows. I've been chased by one too many cows in my lifetime. You've been actually chased by said cows. Uh, yeah. Well, they're herd animals, see? And yeah. when you piss them off, they all come after you. So you make it your goal to piss off a herd no! of no, 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 no. And it was really only one. And I was on a four-wheeler, so it's fine. It's just that it's scary. <laughs> and their eyes are, like, on the side. I don't like cows. 
That's that's definitely why she doesn't like cows. This is going to be a fun episode. I can already tell. You know what? And I want I want to tie this into fan fiction. Do you ever read like you know a line of dialogue from Ron and think Harry really should have said it? Yes. That kind of thing. That is something that would happen to Jen. Jen should be back in a couple weeks, and I. I was talking to her the other day and she was very sad she couldn't be here and she even said i haven't been on the show in so long and i'm like jen you were on You're last week, last week. <laughs> and there was a moment of silence and she's like i know that but i really don't think she did so <laughs> i really think if she's listening to episode 17 she's gonna be like oh my god She's going to be like, Jay, I can't believe you kept me in the episode. I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> I'll be like, it's not me, it's Ryan. Ryan edited it. Oh, I just cut off most of the stuff. Oh, great. All right. And Phil should hopefully be back. Oh, um, we're just talking about cows and we're not even doing any housekeeping here. I would like to congratulate <laughs> Chi on becoming a full-time host of Polarfic Weekly. Congratulations, thank Chi. Thank you. Thank you. I was referring to Chi last week as kind of like the girl that you date and you go out with her every week and you don't ask her out, but after a while you just realize that you're dating her. That's kind of like Chi with Polarfic Weekly. <laughs> she started off as the voicemail person and then she you know, kind of moved up to guest host and she's now just you know in every episode and you know i'm the only one that's like oh yeah i've got all kinds of time i don't do anything with my life i'll just i'll be here (laughs) so so we got our parking space and we're we're good with that i'd also like to congratulate phil we made him a full-time host of the show as well now we're hoping to get him in more and more but as his busy life stays busy we may have to um be hearing from phil from the past for a while but we like phil from the past phil from the past is very easy to manipulate he is very easy to manipulate it's easy to stick wherever you want him and that just sounded so (laughs) wrong and to to try and save you i mean we could stick phil from the past right here beautifully put ryan or we here. could. Absolutely. Or here. Uh, I don't know about that. Possibly here. Okay. Or even over there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, we're having too much fun with Phil from the past. Here, there, to... and everywhere. All right, we need to get down to business. Okay. I'm trying to think. Oh, my God. We have business. All right, do we have any news? Uh... I was interviewed by the good people over at Spellcast. They talk about Parfic Weekly and why it's so long, which I had a great deal of fun with. So uh, if you don't listen to Spellcast already, go download it. And I can't think of another thing to say. You get anything? No, I, I, I really don't think anything's too new on the forums other than Mac is back from his cruise. Mac is back from his cruise. We missed Mac. We missed Mac. It just wasn't the same without him. Everybody was off topic and we were just like a herd without a shepherd. Yeah. And now Mac's back and he can get back to doing what he does best, which is making sure everybody else does exactly what he wants them to do. I don't know how it so, happened, but Mac's return raised my cholesterol, and I'm not sure what the correlation <laughs> is. Oh my goodness. All right. He, uh, yeah. Okay. Welcome back, Mac. All right. So We love you. I'm not going to go right. there, but yeah. I, okay. <laughs> Just don't give me any crap tonight. I am so uh, I'm beyond tired right now. Oh, that means it's going to be a great episode. It's going to be a great episode. It's going to be as good as when I was on pain medication. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty sure it's going to be fun. <laughs> was that the episode that you closed with, I love you, man? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I feel very close to you guys. I feel right very now. close to you guys right now. That, that you gave me a lot of crap about that, but I really did feel close to those girls, and I still feel close to those girls. And Danielle needs to call me, because we need to have a chat. I have to tell you, Melinda prompted um, me to open my canon books for the first time during a Potterfic Weekly episode. Really? I do, and I have the British edition of 
Half Blood Prince in front of me. I loaned the American edition to a friend. So hopefully I can read British. I hope you can. I am just saying this to annoy Amy from our forums, who's our resident Brit, because there was one time I complimented her British accent, and I got an email, so. <laughs> she's very, I love, I love Amy. She's so very. What did I say that really got, no, I, I, I called it show's British accent, and it was Scottish. Ooh. Yeah. You oh, we can't tell the difference between Scottish and British accents. Uh, you know, okay, well, people who think Jen and I have the same accent, so, you know. Really? Really? You're very, you're distinctly Bostonian. Did you just say really twice? I think so. Okay, because you were echoing earlier. You're like, really? Really? I'm like, oh, God. I was going, really? Really? Okay. Like, trying to process that because, I don't know, you sound Bostonian and Jen sounds Texan. <laughs> Jen is very and, Texan. And I don't know what I sound like. <laughs> you sound Bostonian, which is funny because you're surrounded by cows who are not orgasming right now. <laughs> <laughs> that might be my new signature on the forums. All right, so we are jumping into tonight's discussion of the Seventh Horcrux chapters six through eleven. Hey, look at this—we're on track. Hallelujah! 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 Oh, except we're not—we're a week behind. Okay, never mind. We'll fix that. Well, 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 you know, you know us. Well, some week we'll be all lying around with nothing to do, and Brian will say, "You know what?" We should podcast, and we'll all be like, "Yay!" When have we ever t- have we ever done that? Um, well, one time we did two episodes in one week. Oh no, I we tried remember. to do two small episodes in one week, and what happened was they were the largest episodes we ever did. Yes, yeah. that's true. Two five-hour conversations, but it was so much fun. Oh, I miss all those people. Come back, come back, right. <laughs> come back, Phil, and everybody. Well, okay. we can't have Melinda on because it's her fic. Phil had a baby, and we're trying to keep everyone away from Danielle right now. So, <laughs> All right, so jumping into Chapter 6. Now, a lot of the previous episode was filled with us um, making the same suggestions over and over again. Number one, because I think they're irrelevant. And number two, we were really tired during the recording of the last episode. We apologize. Exhausted. Oh my Brian God. and I both are like, okay, we're going to take a 30 second pause so we can yawn. I have to tell you too, some of the stuff you were saying at the end of the episode, I have no memory of you saying during the recording. I apologize. It was, I think it was one of those episodes where we wanted to start recording at like seven and we started at like 10. Oh my God. So, yes. Bad news. But, yeah. I mean, it was some good, um, some good criticism. It was just that it probably got kind of monotonous because we were all like, I don't know. Well, I think a lot of the criticism held over the first. They, it, it was kind of consistent from chapter to chapter, and I know yeah. we've um, Melinda's contacted us a little bit, and we've had some back and forth on it. And I think for the most part, she agrees with the bulk of it. You know, the the first five chapters really were, you know, Melinda pivoting the story into one that she wanted to tell. She wanted to tell a story that was more romantic than I think what J.K.R. set up for her. I think she wanted to have the characters in different places than J.K.R. left them. So she really needed to... Do some fast maneuvering. Right. The situation and the people and, yeah. Yeah. It was a little awkward, but we understand why she did it. Yeah, and it's kind of like it pays you money to take these chances because, you know... one of the things that the Seventh Horcrux sets itself at, up as is an alternate year seven. And it assumes that it is going to carry forward from 
it is assumed that it will carry forward from Half-Blood Prince, you know, seamlessly. And that really can't happen because if the same person were, and let me even back up a little bit here. Some people write a story, you know, with no intention of really continuing where the last story took off from. I've read many fics that are post Hogwarts that make veiled references to Horcruxes, but you could tell they could have been written five years ago and they just inserted that line of dialogue at the end. They're really yeah. writing a separate story. Whereas, you know, especially with, with the seventh Horcrux, Melinda is really writing a sequel to Half-Blood Prince. And I think when you pick up a sequel to Half-Blood Prince, you assume it will continue forward and be written in the same voice as Half-Blood Prince. And that really doesn't happen. But you know what? I really like where this story does go, and I really like Melinda's, you know, the stroke of her pen, and I really do like where she brings these characters. So it's definitely something where, you know, minus those, those few small points, I, I really appreciate the fact that she did it once we get into Chapter 6 and Chapter 7 and Chapter 8, which wouldn't have really right. been possible unless she had done that before. So I think you can really you can really give her a check mark next to the criticism that we gave her last week because it wasn't just, you know, for, for the hell of it writing these scenes. She was doing a lot of setup that pays off big time in these chapters. And I have to tell you, while I didn't nearly drive into a gas station, <laughs> I, I, I did, you know, yelp on a train and I did, at one point I was in a fast lane and I found myself in the middle lane with no memory of having God in there. And I do blame Melinda for that, you know, completely. <laughs> nice. Oh my goodness. I these chapters I you know, I said at the beginning that the the beginning is a little bit hard to get through for me and then after that I'm golden. Yeah. Um this is th- these are a lot easier to handle cuz there's they aren't as rushed, they aren't as forced. They're a lot um y- this is where she really hits her stride. So she's back from vacation in Disneyland. Did you notice that? She comes back from Disneyland and She's writing her story, and everything's good now. So I have to laugh about that because when I listen to these um, stories in my car, I copy the entire chapter um, and I put it into a program that essentially reads it back to me on an MP3 file. And I actually copy over the author's notes as well. So basically, it's the same narrator's voice the whole time. You know, very dark and very foreboding. Then saying, "I am back from Disneyland. The kids had a wonderful time." And it's just, yeah. it just—I'm like, what? <laughs> blows my mind but um there's no break ah is there any breaks between scenes i want to ask you like if they break if they pause is there a pause in the voice or does it just kind of like does it take into account punctuation and stuff yeah i mean it, it it does it sounds like a computer reading it um there are like it's actually amusing because sometimes they'll put the asterisks you know to separate the chapters and it's like and harry returns home for the eight asterisks the next day <laughs> it's just, it like yeah. reads right through but um yeah after a while you actually get used to it but if someone sits in your car you know and you forget it's on you scare the ever-living crap out of them because <laughs> they don't know what's happening <laughs> nice i did that one day i drove someone into work and they just like jumped in my car for the last like two minutes of the trip and they're looking at me like what the hell are you listening to i'm like nothing npr <laughs> npr god <laughs> you're awful <sighs> okay all right so let's get into chapter six harry leaves grimmauld place and he travels by train to godrick's hollow and i thought this is interesting for me because it seems like many of the plot elements that we saw in uh our discussion of after the end we now get to see from melinda and one thing i was wondering was you know since you were discussing after the end 
does she find herself in the position of either casting, you know, Azkaban or casting Godric's Hollow or casting some of these characters in a different light, or does she pay homage to After the End sometimes? And I was especially curious how that would happen, and that's just because After the End is so fresh in my mind. And I know that does happen at one point. She actually does make a reference to Culperat, not by name, but um, just by the um, plot device from After the End. So I was really curious about that as I was um, listening to her um, move Harry to Godric's Hollow, because I was curious how it would compare and contrast to the Godric's Hollow we just saw a few weeks ago. I didn't notice any comparisons to After the End. Um, I think because I just kind of used to moving from one story to another very quickly because I beta read. So you can be in one universe and be in another universe very quickly if you're doing all your beta reading in one night. So, um, which is kind of the same, the way I read when I beta read is the way I read when I podcast. So, um, authors out there that I review should not be like quaking in their boots unless we decide to podcast and then I'll go back and do a much deeper reading. But, um, I, I think, I didn't notice any comparisons to after the oh, no, she might have been playing like loose yeah she might have been playing like loose homage at certain points but all of us have certain things in our writing that we steal from people yeah you know so we like you know so and I didn't mean to and one thing I want to be very careful is we're not going to compare stories that we discuss to other ones at least we're not going to do it you know knowingly it's going to slip out but one thing I just find interesting is that when you find two authors and you know that one author reads the other author's work and when you see their work cross onto different areas it's just natural for me to say okay whether you're going to do differently or whether you're going to do the same so it's one thing I just look out for because both Arabella and Genia and Melinda take Harry to very similar places so I look for the first thing I always look for is differences. How does this compare to that? And I'm going to be doing it when I'm watching Order of the Phoenix the movie in a few weeks. I want to see how their Azkaban compares to the Azkaban in my head and the Azkaban that we just um, read about in these two stories. So it's, I mean to say that you know I'm looking for the homage to be paid because it should have been. I'm just curious how how it differs and how it's the same and so forth because I'm just one of those geeks that way. Um, yeah. What did you think of Godric's Hollow? Um, you know, this is a great chapter right up until um, Wormtail shows up. Okay. I think, um, y- you know, I I love how he, you know, he's on the train. He's thinking about Jenny. We've kind of backed. The Jenny thing is feeling a lot more natural to me now. Um, and he's there and he, he's standing and he can't feel anything. Like, he can't, you know, and then he finds where... He finds where his father had died, and he just stands there and kind of absorbs it all. And I like how he can feel that that is the spot where his dad died, you know. You know, and, and even moving on to the next few chapters, we see that Harry is feeling things, you know. He's yeah. feeling spells. He's feeling magic. So this is a nice moment, but she goes on and she continues to justify the moment because she uses this plot device over and over and over and over again, which is nice. So it's not this, like, contrived, real fake, you know, moment yeah, it's, where he has, like, some psychic connection with his parents or something bizarre like that. Yeah, and the seeds are laid very early for that. I thought that was a very powerful moment, too. I mean, you're Harry, and you've been living with the Dursleys for years, and you're under the impression your parents died in a car accident, and you never get to see their graves, you never get to have any connection to them, and even when he goes off to Hogwarts, you don't see any real connection with James and Lily. And it's something that Ginny will say to him later in these chapters, when he 
didn't feel any different visiting their graves. He didn't feel that you know instant connection he expected, or he didn't you know have you know the floodgates torn open and he just you know found peace with himself. He I think he was expecting some type of chemical reaction to his parents' graves. You know, put the Horcruxes aside for a second. This is the first time he has gone to honor them in that capacity, and it didn't feel any different. Right. Well, I mean, he, I think he's kind of expecting what I think all of us would expect if we had lost our parents, like a, you know, a a movie moment where they step out from behind the grave and they give him advice from beyond, you know, and, you know, we all kind of hope for that kind of experience when we go, when we lose somebody and it just, it doesn't happen, you know, most of the time. And so it's just part of that. I like how she's dealing with Harry continually having to deal with the loss of his parents and how it becomes clear to him in, in new ways all the time. So that's that's an interesting. I like her lost little boy Harry. I'll say it before I'll say it again. I love how she characterizes Harry. I I don't necessarily think that that's the way he's going to be in canon, but I I do like how he has these moments where he's looking for a family unit. He's looking for parents and he can't. I mean, he's finding them in places he's not expecting to find them. So, um, you know, that's that's a really interesting part of Harry's journey that I think Joe will hopefully deal with in this next chapter. But Melinda focuses a lot of attention and energy on, and also, I think, power of emotion. I think that she does that same kind of thing as well. She deals with Harry's loss of his parents, um, which might have something to do with the fact that Melinda is a mom. I think it's interesting how, yeah. you know, if you read Jules fan fiction, if you read Melinda's fan fiction, um, there are some other women out there that are really big deals that are mothers, and their take on Harry and what he is going through is going to be vastly different than, you know, somebody who's Harry's age and their take on what Harry is going through. You know, their their story about Harry finding the Horcruxes might be more about Harry's journey for independence versus Harry looking for his parents. Yeah, and that's a really great point, because we actually had this discussion on our forum this week. We were just referencing Jules right there. That's Aggie Bell on the um, Parfic Weekly forums. If you go to parficweekly.com, click on Library, there's links to uh, some of Jules's uh, published works there, too. And that's a really good point, because we were discussing, actually, uh, fix the deal with um, teachers and students, you know, usually a graduated student coming back and having uh, romantic involvement with one of their former teachers. You know, we have some of the younger members of our forum not really have an issue with those fics, and we have some of the moms in our forum, you know, picturing their kids in that situation having a big problem with those fics. So I definitely think that it's very telling that the author of this fic, you know, has children of her own, and how it would have been written if, you know, I sat down to write it probably would have been different, and, you know, it's just the author's perspective, uh, you know, being very important. And I definitely, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, I want to get back to what happened at Godric's Hollow, but uh, you know, the conversation that Harry will later have with Ginny about going there and seeing uh, James and Lily's graves and not having that type of reaction that he, you know, wanted to have when he went there. You know, Ginny points out, you know, the story of Molly and her brothers, and her brothers were lost during the First Voldemort War, and sometimes in the house she'll talk to them. And he, you know, Ginny doesn't remember Molly going to their graves, but 
you know, she does know that Molly deals with, you know, the loss of her brothers, you know, in the way that she does. And, you know, for Harry, he doesn't have to go to their graves to feel their presence and to learn from them. In fact, you know, look how helpful James and Lily have been in the past seven years to Harry, and he's never gone to Godric's Hollow. And, like, even for me today, you know, it's, it's Father's Day, you know, as we're recording this, and my dad passed away a few years ago, and just due to some situations that came up today, I didn't get a chance to go to the cemetery. But I don't feel as though I'm missing out on a conversation, because if I want to say something, I don't need to stand in front of a grave to do it. I can do it anywhere. Right. So I just thought that was a really powerful moment, and I really give uh, Melinda... Um, kudos for for factoring that in the fact that when you, you know especially for a, you know an author you know to have someone go to to a grave and suddenly have an epiphany it's not something that has to happen in that particular place i like the fact that that was dealt with and i like the fact that you can talk to these people anywhere you don't have to do it you know at their gravesite and it really gives you know more i'm trying to think of a way to say this it really makes the relationship between harry and his parents you know continuing rather than something that was terminated to the previous point. I just really right. like the implications of that a lot. Me too. I think it also is a very, it, it's kind of a, it's a point to Melinda's maturity as an author as well as a person to understand that, you know, if you have lost your parents at one, as Harry did, you know, it, the fact that you've lost them isn't an epiphany. You aren't going to have this big existential meltdown like when you get to the graves because you're not dealing I mean, you ha- you've never had them, you know, so you don't, that's not a new sensation. The loss of the connection might be a little bit disappointing, but it's not this huge dramatic moment, you know. It's more of a step on finding yourself in the journey, and I think a younger author, maybe a less experienced author, would have had Harry, you know, on his knees, pounding the ground. Why? Why? Yeah, exactly, you know, and this is much more realistic and it leads to um, it, it leads to a much more mature a more emotionally available Harry which is nice um, especially for the kind of story that Melinda wants to tell because you can't write a romance romantic story with Harry where Harry was left off in Half-Blood Prince you know like I was reading I actually finished my reread of Half-Blood Prince today and um you know, I was reading it specifically for the Harry Ginny relationship because I wanted to remember how it pertains to this fic. And um, a lot of it is, you know, Harry enjoys kissing her. He thinks about her a lot, but he's not, like, consumed with this passion for her. And aside from, like, the beginning of the fic, I like how she kind of starts fresh with the wedding and she starts to build up this relationship. You know what I'm saying? It's not as... It's kind of abrupt in the beginning, but then she kind of settles down and it mm-hmm. kind of builds in a much more natural way. I think the boobs were the turning point. Probably. I do. <laughs> I, I think Jenny's boobs were a turning point. I do want to say one thing, too, because this pertains to both the canon and to uh, the seventh Horcrux. I was watching a uh, new segment the other day on MSNBC pertaining to John Kennedy. And one of the questions that the interviewer asked, uh, you know, a, a well, you know, published author, you know, on John Kennedy was, you know, what would he have been like today? You know, what would our perceptions of him, you know, have become should he have not been assassinated? And I really liked the answer, which was he will always be the age he was when he died. And he will never, 
you know, be an old man to us, we always will think of him in that state. He was, you know, frozen in time, you know, as a young man, as, you know, a very vibrant president, and that's who he'll always be. And when you think of Harry Potter, and I think this may, on some level, be a flaw in the movies, because when we meet James and Lily in the first movie, and when we see them in uh, Goblet of Fire... Yeah, they're old. They're, they they're... look like they're 30 or 40, and they died when they were in their 20s. I'm glad I'm not the only one that noticed this. Okay. And I, and I do want to point out, I'm not calling people in thirty in their 30s or 40s old. I'm not saying, wow, you're old. I think you're 35. Mm-hmm. But, they, yeah, they should have been 22 when they died. Well, I don't think they're, they're more... They, James and Lily were more close to my age, weren't they? They were 20, 21. Yeah. Like, they were really young when they got married and had Harry. Yeah, so. they were. So, one thing to make... To, to say that's very important is the point that Harry is reaching in this fic and in Deathly Hallows and in the overwhelming, you know, in, in the overarching storyline is around the age that James and Lily were in when they died. So I think there's on some level, you know, when you walk down to a grave site and you're looking, you know, to find something or to learn something from the people that came before you, you kind of you know, put your parents, you know, in the position of almost like village elder. And you think, you know, James and Lily, you know, they were so wise and they did this wonderful thing and they were so brave and they loved so much. They were 20. If James and Lily could come back today, they would be Harry's contemporary. Right. You know, that's an important distinction to make because sometimes I think that when he's there, he's actually looking to his parents who, you know, are 45 years old and have a lot to share with him. And they're not. They were, they were kids themselves. Right, and unless you're arguing that they're, you know, they are gaining experience watching other people, like watching Ramus and, and Sirius and watching Harry. That's not to say that they didn't love Harry a lot, and they were probably very intelligent people, but he'd be just as well taking advice from Hermione and Ron, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm sure they love each other very much, and they did a great thing, but you're still 20, you're not still 19 and 20, and it's awful to lose that relationship with your parents when they're growing in maturity as you're growing in maturity, you know, and I'm, I'm sure Harry feels that very keenly from time to time. So, yeah. Um, so he's, I want to go, I want to move on. I want to make a point about Wormtail if I can. Yeah. Um, he, he shows up and he's kind of a, he's a very intelligent Wormtail. Did you notice this? He is. And I originally was thinking, whoa, what's going on here? And then I'm start, I stopped and thought of Wormtail himself. Wormtail fools a lot of people. He did fool a lot of people. I think Melinda is one of the few authors that doesn't underestimate Wormtail. I think his characterization is a little bit too um, cunning and, a little, and not enough self-preserving. But um, he... I mean, at the same time, it kind of isn't, it kind of isn't, but she really doesn't underestimate Wormtail. I mean, he had to be smart. By all accounts, James and Lily were set to be the best witches and wizards of their age. And he had Sirius Black fooled, which is probably not an easy task. And and Ramus Lupin fooled, and Albus Dumbledore fooled. I mean, he had everybody just wool completely over their eyes. Yeah, and it's the same thing that we have with Snape now. Did did he or didn't he? Was Snape a traitor? Was Snape, you know, not a hero, but was Snape someone, you know, who is working for the good side doing terrible things? I mean, I don't like to say good or evil, because that's, I think, an oversimplification. But, yeah, I mean, with Wormtail, while there's no dispute that he, you know, was working for Voldemort, that's not even a factor, he fooled 
everybody, and he fooled them either through his acting skills, or he fooled them because no one was even suspecting him, so he really didn't have to do much. But yeah, he pulled the wool over everyone's eyes, and he's responsible for the return of Voldemort. He's responsible for the death of James and Lily. I mean, every major plot element of the series can be traced back to Wormtail. So he's not the snoveling little idiot. Although, one thing you did say was that, you know, he's not... um, a little, he, he's a little too brave, and he's a little, you know, not, you know. Yeah, this is a little bit too much uh, initiative for Wormtail. I well, thought. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, he was cowering at certain points. He did hide. He did, you know, retreat. I mean, and, and I love the part where Harry just sucker punches him. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, like, get him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, he didn't see that one coming, and he never suspected it. I mean, th- there were limits placed on his character. Although, for the character who made the initiative himself to bring Voldemort back from the dead and no one else tried, you know, going out and meeting with Harry at Godric's Hollow and following him around, you know, when he was already sent to monitor Harry through the burrow, I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But I'm curious, what do you think about the character and why he's there and and what he adds to the... Um, I think it's interesting. I I don't know. See, the problem um, is I... I just I have a hard time with Wormtail escaping Voldemort's clutches enough that he would be able to do that. I mean, be able to get away with it. So I I don't know. I I guess I like it. Well, no, I mean like, I don't see it so much as he escaped you know Voldemort's clutches. I mean Voldemort has people out on certain assignments, and one of Wormtail's assignments was to mon- monitor the burrow. And of course the burrow was abandoned, but he's still out on missions. I mean, he's an animagus. He can slip into places no one else can slip into. So, right. I, I don't have a problem with, you know, on his way back from a mission or, you know, as part of some other mission that, you know, Voldemort has him on, for him, you know, monitoring Harry and popping in to see Harry. Now, I haven't read beyond, I think, chapter 13, chapter 14, so I don't know, you know, what more, you know, Wormtail will add to the storyline. I suspect he's going to be back. Now, reading this, I didn't believe him. Now, I believed him about the Horcrux, but he brings up the entire tale of how Snape is getting in really good with Voldemort and everyone else is being pushed to the side. And it's a little bit too easy. <laughs> to me, it's, You know what it seems? It seems too easy. <laughs> it seemed like set up for me, and it seemed like like the scene where like you know the two bad guys you know, capture someone and then one bad guy insults the other bad guy and they get into a fist fight and the good guy escapes. It just it seemed like, you know... I can definitely see that, you know, the fact that you put all your, you know, good graces into Voldemort and you, your, your one, you know, claim to power and your one claim to survival is that Voldemort will, you know, respect you for what you do for him. And I like the idea that that assumption will betray people and their own, you know, quest for power and their quest for control will be their undoing. That said, I, I, I don't know what I think at this point about you know Voldemort liking Snape more than I'm sorry you know Voldemort being closer to Snape than Wormtail and as a result Wormtail's jumping ship I think it should have gone further I think there should have been something else there to make you know I think that that threshold was a little bit low for Wormtail yeah especially with everything he went through but then again I don't know what comes and maybe I'm supposed to think that I'm really 
you know, don't spoil it for me, but that's, you know, as a new reader going through that chapter, that was my first initial impression that, that something's wrong here. Well, then again, like, here's my problem with it. The last time we see Wormtail, uh, the best that I recall from um, Half-Blood Prince is um, one of the very prominent scenes is when he is in the house with um, Snape and Narcissa Malfoy and Belix Lestrange, and he is, um, he's, he's Snape's servant. So if he's really that concerned with, you know, his position in Voldemort's inner circle, don't you think he would have done something about it by now? Like, it just seems... I didn't think he was a servant. I thought he was either, I thought he was either being, you know, kept there in hiding by Voldemort for whatever reason, or Snape was monitoring Wormtail. And we don't... Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Wormtail does not appear in Order of the Phoenix, does he? He's, um, not, he's not involved in the fighting at the Ministry. He's not involved in the, at the fighting in the Ministry, no. I think he might be at the beginning, maybe, possibly. There might be some moments... I know he has um, some moments with Nagini, and where he has... Where Harry sees Wormtail, I'm pretty sure... Isn't that then Goblet of Fire though? Um, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to read Order of the Phoenix again. <laughs> well, go do that. I, I'll hold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right in. Right in. Ryan at com. If I'm a moron, I'll put you on the show. But well, I can't really do that because it's a it's an email. Voicemail in to Ryan at com, and I'll put you on the show. Um. I got the impression from the canon that Wormtail basically was very strong in three and four, disappeared in five, you know, showed up with Snape in six. We're not really sure why he's there, but I never got the impression that Voldemort, you know, got up one day and said, Severus needs a butler. Well, I went, Wormtail! Like, I didn't really see that as a... I didn't see it that way. I saw it more as um, he was Snape's subordinate. And so, therefore... You know, he doesn't really put up too much of a fight when um, Snape sends him to go get drinks. You know, it seems to me like he was there to make, you know, to keep an eye on Snape, possibly, or Snape was there to keep an eye on him, but he was... Oh, I never Snape's- got that, but I really like Wormtail the butler. Yeah, wouldn't that be... That would be real charming. Couldn't that, wouldn't that be terrible? You bring your master back from the dead, and you get turned into Jeeves. <laughs> he deserves it, though, a little up. Yeah. But... There you go. Luckily, your mic cut out there, so I didn't hear what you said. Um, okay, good. <laughs> okay, so just to put it back on track, I mean, let's put it this way, you know, in terms of how well how well it fits into canon. You know, I, I don't think there's any doubt from the canon that Wormtail's position diminished after Gobble of the Fire. No. So now we have, you know, Wormtail, you know, like I said... To me, I was suspecting a trap, but, you know, God, there were some things in, in Half-Blood Prince, I'm like, oh, this is what's going to happen here, and, you know, I was completely overthinking it, but that was my impression that this was some, and somehow a tra- this, this was somehow a trap, and, you know, Wormtail was doing, you know, his master's bidding here, although, I don't know, I mean, this is going to be the thing that we're going to see in Deathly Hallows, and how well it's done, and this is the question to ask. Either Snape is, you know, a double player at which point he's playing everyone against the middle, or he is definitely working for Voldemort and he just betrayed Dumbledore, or he is betraying Voldemort and is loyal to Dumbledore. But I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how Voldemort reacts to Snape. I mean, it's like, okay, you know, Snape is working for Voldemort 
and he ki- he fools Dumbledore and then kills him and then goes back to Voldemort. If I'm Voldemort, I'm going to think, okay, this guy's a really good liar because he just fooled Dumbledore. And, you know, he killed the last guy he lied to. You know, I'm not going to welcome you back with open arms because how do I know you're not trying to screw me over? On the other hand, you know, maybe that's the flaw in Voldemort and he thinks that, you know, anyone could have seen through, you know, Severus's ruse, but Dumbledore was such an old fool that, you know. Yeah. That's uh, one of Voldemort's. The issue, Joe keeps saying one of the um, Voldemort's only downfall is his inability to love. But it, there's also his nearsighted arrogance part of him that he's he's very much a megalomaniac and um, he's very concerned with you know himself and only himself. And that's the error. And I'm thinking of a lot of the Death Eaters is that they think that he's concerned with them and he's not. But um, the the interesting thing about reading. Um, Half-Blood Prince, you know, just specifically for the Snape conflict is that there's enough evidence that it could go either way. You know, yeah. and it's a real, I was I had read enough fan fiction <laughs> that I was convinced that Snape was good. And then I read it and I am not sure at all. And I'm just, I'm not going to venture any opinions in public anymore. <laughs> well, there goes my next question. Is Snape, you know, a good guy or a bad guy? Even though he's neither good nor bad. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think people can be, I think people can be either good or evil, but it takes, you know, Voldemort's definitely evil, but, I mean, it takes years and years and years of evil doing to get pure evil. <laughs> You're like on probation for a while. You need to commit like four acts of evil a month before you get your evil ID card. Yeah, you need to commit at least three unforgivables. So that'd be all right. Voldemort is in the evil union. He's in the evil union. It's like him and Saruman and Sauron and they get floating holidays. They get free (laughs) dental and vision. (laughs) They get a three percent increase every year in the year. They get uh, at least three or four minions to torture every month. All right, and I want to get more into uh, Melinda's um, take on Snape, but um, t- t- to move back to the chapter, so we have Wormtail and we have Harry, and Wormtail, you know, informs Harry that he is the seventh Horcrux. And before we get into the seventh Horcrux, you know, because it's the name of the damn fan fiction. All right, uh, all right, we have seven. We have seven Horcruxes. We have the ring. We have the diary. We have the Hufflepuff cup. We have the locket. We have Harry himself. Yeah. We have the piece that's in Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And we have one more, which up until chapter 13, I don't know what it is. Yeah. All right. Okay, because I, I was getting confused at one point because there were certain points where they would rattle off the ones they had so far, and I wasn't getting what the last one was, and I kept forgetting the Voldemort is included. So Here's Vol- my question, though. What's that? Like, I, I was rereading canon, and I think I'm confused. Okay. Because... Voldemort says, I mean, Dumbledore says to Harry, Voldemort intended to make his seventh Horcrux when he came to kill you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't work. So did he get to make the seventh Horcrux? That's my question. Did it, I don't think that ripped enough of his soul apart because he couldn't do it. But maybe it did. I, I'm, I'm very confused as to whether or not there's going to be, and maybe I'm the only person that in the world that's like questioning this. And I, I, someone I, must have done this already. Right. Okay, it. so there's seven. So there's either six Horcruxes in Voldemort. There's either seven Horcruxes in Voldemort, or there's. Did I say that right? Or there's seven Horcruxes yeah. including Voldemort? Okay, well that's. I the think first there's seven Horcruxes. There's seven Horcruxes including Voldemort. I think that's the. Okay. The thing. All right. Because he only had to find however many more. 
All right. So there's technically one more I don't know about. Right. All right. I think. Yeah. Okay. We're just going to go with that or else we're going to be here all night. Okay. Right. So Harry as the seventh Horcrux. Now, my thoughts on that are the following. You know, in Chamber of Secrets, we are told that, you know, Voldemort transferred some of himself to Harry. We are told that Harry is a parcel tongue because Voldemort was a parcel tongue. We are told that, you know, obviously the scar is a connection between them. You know, you know, at times Voldemort literally inhabits Harry. Now, that, you know, is primarily the scene at the end of Order of the Phoenix and he's immediately pushed out. So, you know, I'm 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 trying to look for a canon basis to support this. And all I can come up with is it works for me because Voldemort has so greatly influenced who Harry is, both by what he took away from him and also just the you know, the inner turmoil that Harry feels, you know, throughout the series and it's clear that Voldemort is connected to him always and I don't believe that, you know, part of Harry is Voldemort, but I do believe that kind of like, you know, John Sheridan on Babylon 5, I am not against the idea of of Harry carrying something within him, and Harry is a whole person, but there's this piece of Voldemort, you know, lodged in him. It's not controlling Harry, it's not, you know part of his personality, it's not like, you know, evil Harry's in there somewhere. But I I I I do appreciate the idea. I actually like the idea very much, and it is very plausible based on you know what happened in nineteen eighty one at Godric's Hollow. And what I really like is how Melinda is able to write this perfectly into the storyline and it makes sense you know the characters don't have to become stupid and overlook things it makes sense with what we know from canon Voldemort backed off in Half-Blood Prince yeah alright what do you think Harry's a Horcrux Um, Harry's a Horcrux um you know here's where I'm gonna confess that I have no original thought and this is why I don't (laughs) I don't like to spend too much time come you know, contemplating and making predictions about canon because I'm always wrong and it's always really embarrassing. Um, I'm not the world's biggest fan. <laughs> okay. And I I don't know why I, I I like the I can see the canon evidence for it. It's just that um, I I think he would have been able to have more control over Harry. You know, it just seems to me that we a Dumbledore would. I mean, that's not that. After the disaster in Order of the Phoenix, we see uh, Dumbledore making a concerted effort to keep not as much from Harry. I mean, obviously he knows something about Snape that he's not going to tell Harry, probably because it's confidential between Snape and Harry and it's none of Harry's business. I get that. You know, Mm -hmm. the other thing that he hides from him is the thing about the Horcruxes, but that makes sense because he wants to build this logical step-by-step conclusion. So if Dumbledore had an inkling that Harry was a Horcrux. I think that the whole, the way he would have acted during Half Blood Prince would be completely different. Now that's a good point because you know Dumbledore would at least consider it, and he did one of two things: he either considered it, believed it, and figured that Harry would find a way out of it. 
And the way Melinda writes that into the storyline, I have to believe, is by the piece of equipment that he leaves to Harry from his office that was used in Order of the Phoenix. And just to talk about the object, I think the the fic really benefits from the fact that Melinda seems to have done a great deal of research in the canon to find you know, loose threads that Joe put in there that haven't been addressed yet that, you know, it seems like there's like, you know, the five or six scenes that everyone seems to focus on, but there's all these other moments in the canon that no one really talks about. And I just have this weird feeling that a lot of the resolution that we're going to see in Deathly Hallows is going to come from those moments, kind of like the vanishing cabinet. You know, no one really, to my knowledge, put a lot of concentration into the vanishing cabinet and that was very crucial in half-blood prince is that fair you know? I, I would say that's fair yeah yeah. I'm, yeah i mean the there's you know those two paragraphs you know in order of the phoenix about you know dumbledore's device it's really not explained but if that somehow factors into the horcruxes and if that's somehow a precursor to the horcruxes i think that's very you know, a very powerful um, bit of foreshadowing there and, and i don't know what it means i mean it means that on some level there can be more than one consciousness in a creature. You know, the snake can divide into two. You know, it's 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 almost like, you know, like shaking, like, you know, like a bottle of orange juice, you know, to separate the elements out. I mean, is it something where you have Harry and then you have something inside of him? And just to get back to, you know, a point I know you've made, if there's a Horcrux inside Harry and Dumbledore knew it in Order, order of the Phoenix, wouldn't that have been addressed at some point during Half-Blood Prince? Wouldn't Dumbledore have hinted at it. Yes. I, I think he would have, but, you, you know, there's an argument to be made for, you know, maybe the reasoning that he wouldn't have said something. I mean, it's all just a matter of how you want to characterize Dumbledore, and, and I guess the only person who can say for sure what Dumbledore would do in any given situation is is Joe Rowling herself, but it seems to me that... She's not returning Harry, my calls. She's not returning I know. my calls. She won't, she won't get back to me either. I wonder why that is. Um, She's on the phone with Mac now. Did we ask Mac to ask her? Well, we, sh- we should find out. Well, you know, Mac. He's got connections. What? Um, Mac is a very powerful person. He is. Powerfictforum.com, <laughs> everybody. Um, <laughs> people are like, who the heck is Mac? I don't understand what's going on. It's very late, everybody. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay. we've, been do- we've been doing this for hours. All right, um, hours and hours and hours, and days, literally. Yes, <laughs> everyone asks why our podcasts are so long, and really, since we record for twenty eight hours and hack it down to two, they're really very short. Exactly. Yeah, you should be. The stuff that's really good happens in like hour twenty three and twenty four. I edited that. out the entire pizza party last time. I mean, oh, last that was just back no, to work. This there. is why they're so long. All right. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Um, yeah, I don't remember what point I was making, but I'm sure it was fabulous. You, you did an excellent job with it. And I will say this. I think that if Dumbledore believed that Harry could have been a Horcrux, he would not tell him this because Harry would instantly lose hope. But I believe he definitely believed that Harry would be able to overcome it once he discovered it and once his friends helped him. Because like he said in the cave, I'm not worried. I'm with you. He believed in Harry. and I think he believed that Harry could beat this. Oh, I think so. I, there's a moment in Half-Blood Prince that's really, um, really stuck out in my mind when I reread it where Dumbledore, Harry says something that's very, he mocks Dumbledore's assertion that his power comes from love, and Dumbledore kind of shakes him and goes and tells him he has to, he can't overcome it, you know? So I think that 
that that's a that's a consideration that Dumbledore wouldn't have told him because he would be afraid that Harry would have said would have done something stupid. But I I don't know. I just I don't like it because it doesn't. I don't see I don't see enough evidence in canon for it. I don't know. If Joe does it, she's going to have to write really well. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Well, I disagree on that because I actually, I personally see, you know, a great deal of canon evidence. I think it could go either way, but I think that, you know, like I know Melinda has said before, the fact that Nagini could be a Horcrux means that Harry could be a Horcrux. Why can Nagini be one but not Harry? I definitely think that Dumbledore didn't immediately suspect it. I'm still not sure what's up at this point in the story and at this point in the canon, what was up with the device and what was up with the snakes, but I definitely believe that that was an early clue to the Horcruxes, and I definitely believe it will be relevant in the search for the Horcruxes and the identification of the Horcruxes, but I have to believe that if you go to someone's house to kill people and create a Horcrux, and you kill people, and you point your wand to the little baby, and there is this magical interaction between you and the baby, and the baby takes on some of your magic, and there is a connection you know, form between you and that baby forever, and you mark that baby as part of an ancient prophecy to determine which one of you will be vanquished. The fact that that child could be holding a part of your soul, I, I definitely believe there's a canon basis for that. But you know, we, we're going to be talking about this for weeks, so we we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, yeah. You know, Harry essentially, you know, is is being told by Wormtail that he is a Horcrux, and at this point in the story, you know one thing: Horcruxes have to be destroyed. You have you have to kill the Horcrux to kill what's inside it. Harry is going to die. And Harry has suspected he will die at some point for two years. And he he broke up with Ginny last year because he never believed that they would get anywhere. And he believed, you know, there is no possibility, there is no hope. But on some level there was. On some level, maybe they'll find a way out of this. Okay, one of us will be vanquished, maybe it will be him. Maybe I will be you know, the person to live on. And this is the first confirmation in Harry's eyes that he has no hope. He is going to absolutely die. There's no chance that his friends can pull him out of it. There's no chance he can pull himself out of it. He is going to die. And I love the moment where Wormtail cannot understand the fact that Harry would willingly do that for his friends. He, you know, tells Harry the cause is lost, Voldemort will win, because why would you ever do that? It's just like with Voldemort and love, Wormtail can't understand the fact that maybe someone wouldn't betray their friends. I just thought that was a great moment for the character of Wormtail, because it advances what we've known about him all along. But just to point out the reaction Harry has, I'm going to die. He's a 17-year-old kid who just got told he has you know, a terminal disease, you know, for, for the yeah. sake of argument. He is going to die, and he completely freezes up. And Remus shows up, and Wormtail flees. And I, I just love the way the chapter closes itself out, where you know he, Harry is so unaware of what is happening around him. He's unaware of you know going to the graves. He's unaware of you know being um, apparated back to Number Twelve Grimble Place. He is he 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 is in absolute shock. And yeah. what a great way for Melinda to write that, because how many authors would consider the fact, well, Harry's known for years he's going to die. No, he hasn't. He thought he'd die. He's a downer. It's never been a reality. Yeah, he's been you a know, downer. I mean, he, he yeah. thinks he's going to die every day. I mean, you know, he's one of those people that, you know, gets in their car in the morning, I'm going to get in a lot of traffic today. And every well, day like he gets into traffic, and he's like, I predicted that. But there's always that hope that maybe there's no one on the road. And now right. there's no hope. Well, exactly. He, there's a difference between mortal peril and immortality. I mean, it's... 
I'm I'm 19 and I've never yet had to face my own mortality. I can't imagine having to deal with that at, at 17 to know that to at least assume that there is no hope. You know, to just kind of you know, there's nothing you can do. Like there's no way your friends can pull you out of it like you said. There's just I I, I love this reaction. This it's nice that he's not noble about it. You know, like, he's noble, but he's knee-jerk noble. He's not, you know, he doesn't give a big speech <laughs> yeah. about, you know, how for the pride of Gryffindor, I'm going to, you know, to to avenge the death of my parents, I'm going to do this. He didn't monologue. You know, he didn't monologue. He does what any 17-year-old kid would do. He basically goes, oh, shit. <laughs> You know, and yeah. that's all he can. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And Ramus is having is trying to. Oh my God, where were you? We're all so we can't. We couldn't find you. You didn't tell anybody. And all Harry can do is, I'm going to die. You know, and that's that's very powerful. I think. And like what we were saying last week, we uh, were critical of the fact that the early chapter, the earlier chapter, had you know Ginny's name repeated over and over again. And it didn't really have an emotional impact. Harry himself saying, I'm going to die, and knowing he's a 17-year-old kid who just went to his parents' graves for the first time and confronted the fact that the last generation, you know, was his age when they died, and now he knows that he's going to die. You know, there is so much emotion just in this one particular chapter that I just, you know, it was very powerful. And Harry returns to Grimmauld Place, and the only one who can make it better is Ginny. Yes. And Ginny just holds them, and it's going to be okay. And it may not be okay forever, but just for that one moment, that's all he needed in the world. And he could tell she was frantic for where he was, and she was probably angry at not being told where he was. But it was just, it was a moment that Harry needed. Yeah, he's, you know, he finds his center again, so... I just want to read that, you know, Jenny, he croaked, I'm going to die. Don't talk like that, Harry. Of course you aren't going to die. We're in this together, and I won't let anything happen to you, she replied fiercely. He knew that she didn't have all the information and he couldn't do anything about it, but he knew that she would try and he knew that she cared. And for that moment, the fact that there's someone who's willing to fight for Harry was what mattered. Yeah. You know, this is a kid that for all of his life has had to stand up for himself. There was nobody in between him and Dudley. There's certainly nobody in between him and Snape. There's nobody, you know, between him and Voldemort except Dumbledore. And now that's gone. So... You know, all his life he's had to stand up for himself. So for somebody else to, to you know, say, uh, I don't think so, you know, that's what he needed right then. And that's why to know G- that he wasn't by himself. And that's why Ginny is so important to this particular story, because Ron and Hermione are always Harry's presence. They're always, you know, his foundation. They're always the people who have been with him forever and will be with him forever. And they are the constant force in his life. Ginny represents the future. And if you don't have future, you're done. And many people yeah. spend their lives searching for future, and many people already have it and are, you know, cling to it. And whether it lasts six months or six days or 60 years, Ginny represents Harry's future. And yes. look back, you know, we're on chapter six, look back a few chapters, and that was never reality before because he threw that away before because he thought, you know, that's distracting to what I need to do today. And what Melinda did was really write that story around and have Harry recognize the fact that he needs, you know, the, the carrot on the end of the stick. He needs something he needs to shoot for. 
Yes. Because you you have to you, you have to wake up every day with a reason, or you're not going to wake up every day. You have to have a motive, and you have to have something that matters. And for Harry, as much as he loves Ron and Hermione and the Weasleys and everything else, for Harry, it's Ginny. I think that's so important, and that's why she's the only one that can make it better. Yeah, I think she might even play that role in canon, you know, where Harry might be waking up every day to find the Horcruxes so that he can get back home to Jenny. You know, I think that, you know, even if we're dealing with that sort of situation, that seems reasonable to me. So, yeah, I I, I love how he is, she is his reason. And I think that's a good transition to the next chapter. Well said. Ooh, that was good. Ooh, thank you. I like that. And I really hope so because they released the um, the cover art of the deluxe edition of Deathly Hallows, and it has me slightly concerned, we'll say. Really? Yeah. Why so? We can cut this out, but why so? Uh, Jenny's not in it. Oh, Jenny's not in it? Yeah. Oh, well, I knew, I, I knew she wasn't going to be a part of the Warcrux hunt. I thought it's- she'd be in the back of the... I thought she'd be in Ron's suitcase. Nope, no. Nope. It's not. It's never been the story of Ron and Hermione and um, Harry and Jenny. It's always been Harry, Ron, and Hermione. It's their story, and then Jenny's kind of an auxiliary character that she's important, but J.K.R. is it? Not J.K.R. Yes, yes. J.K.R. Yes. is not writing a romance novel. She's writing an adventure story, and I don't think Harry would be able to concentrate if Jenny was on the Horcrux hunt with him. I'm well, sure I, I don't she's think... at least in the background, and at least in Harry's mind a lot, but I don't think that she's a part of the Horcrux. I, would, I wouldn't assume that she's I think she'll be involved in some capacity, because I don't think it'll be like you'll see her in Chapter 2 and then she'll be gone until the epilogue. I think she's definitely going to be in there in some capacity. And... Oh, I'm sure she'll be in the final battle. You know, if there's a big showdown where all the oars and all the Death Eaters meet out in the middle of a field somewhere and hack each other to bits, I'm sure yeah. Jenny will be there. I like what Melissa Nelly said. She wants Dumbledore's army and the elves and Ginny and Remus and everybody to show up, like you said, on the battlefield and cry out for Dumbledore and just charge in. I thought, I, oh my god, I'll, I'll wet myself directly reading the book. <laughs> yeah. 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 We get to find out in like a month. Oh my god. Okay. Shut up. I'm like Kevin Fitz. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, moving to Chapter 7, Forward Progress, which is, you know, hopefully the name of tonight's episode. Uh, there's a lot of great parts, you know, of the story that are in this chapter. What I really love is the interaction that Harry has you know, upon his return with Molly Weasley. And Molly is Harry's mom. You know, Lily is his mother, but... But Molly Weasley is his mom, and she has been since she showed them where the train was. And Cannon really hasn't acknowledged it, aside from that great, great, great moment in uh, Goblet of Fire that Hermione, you know, completely walked in on and screwed up, and, you know, Melinda fixed in Power of Emotion. But Molly represents the maternal, you know part of Harry's life that's been missing all of these years. Hermione's the sister, Molly's the mom. And as we get into the final chapter of Harry Potter, you know, as the hero completes his journey, you know, Dumbledore is gone. You know, he, he can't go to the order to have them fix this one for him. And now he needs to tell mom, you can't protect me anymore. And what more evident way of showing someone grow up than when, they're, you know, 
the mother figure can't protect them anymore. And Molly wants to keep her kids home. She wants them to play with their dolls and make, you know, forts oh. and, you know, relax. And she wants to hide the fact that there's a war going on. But her part of this story is that you just can't do that because you can't defend your family. And, and, and I love the way that Melinda describes, you know, Molly in this story is that she's fighting you know, tooth and nail to keep these kids kids as long as possible. And Harry eventually has to tell her it's not going to work. Yeah. That's the journey of any mother, you know, is to let go of your children. But she has to do it a lot sooner than most people do, you know, and that's kind of sad for everybody concerned, for Molly and for the kids involved. And But Harry never got a chance to be a kid, you yeah. know. Yeah. He did. He didn't have a childhood. You can't call that a childhood. That's not, you know, that's not worry free. <laughs> so, I like how he wakes up in this next chapter and a kind of sweet, innocent. You know, they're obviously not sleeping with each other at all. You know, but they're. Are you bitter about that? No, no. I think it's great. I think it's perfect because I don't think that you know. I think that a lot of people, when they write fan fiction, especially when they write Horcrux fan fiction, when they bring Jenny and they bring Ron and Hermione along, they take the issue of teenage sex way, way, way too casually. Uh, Ron and Hermione, they decide to do it, you know, they decide it's the next logical step in their relationship, and they sleep with each other, and the next morning, you know, it's all sunshine and daisies and roses, and they're not worried about it, and their relationship hasn't changed at all. It's only deeper and more meaningful and better. All right, and- I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say this. I'm going to be very careful with, with, my, with my thoughts. Number one, I enjoy the fact that there is such a thing as Horcrux fan fiction. I just really, uh, I was amused it's- by that. All right, number two, the fact that, you know, Melinda doesn't write you know, that, you know, these characters have sex and the next day, you know, it's a bright, 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 sunshiny day. Yeah. Proves that Melinda has children. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. She, she wouldn't want her 17-year-old son having sex with her, his girlfriend. So why should Harry, you know? Well, that wasn't what I was. Re- well, that wasn't what I was really going for. What I was going for, and I'm sure she doesn't, but what I was going for, I don't think she has a 17-year-old son. Yeah, she doesn't. I'm sure at one point her son will be 17. But, you know, I, I think, and you talk about this a lot, too. When you have younger authors writing, you know, number one, romance means sex. But number two, you know, you have, you know, whenever you write it, it's the most perfect, beautiful, wonderful, and not always. No. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes. it's like when you wake up in the morning, you know, you don't go skipping, you know, in the street. It's not like, you know, the Buffy episode with music. It's, you know, sometimes you get some, you know, maybe it might be more complicated the next day. And obviously I I, I am under, you know, the impression that the story does progress because I listened to the interview with Melinda on Leaky, and maybe that was misdirection and maybe people are laughing at me right now. That's okay. But it was... I was actually, I don't even know why we're on this topic. I was just joking with the fact that I think genuine mind of these characters are having sex all the time. Probably not, <laughs> knowing Jen. But, y- you know, I I think there's a certain level, uh, I think that, you know, as fan fiction authors, we have to take a certain level of responsibility. And we have to realize that the audience that we're writing for are, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. 
you know, are a lot of the people that are reading the fanfiction. Obviously, there's two sides of the fandom. There's the teenage side, and then there's the older side of the fandom. And, um, you know, the teenage side, they read stuff like, and you know, they're reading um, Lavender Brown. They're reading, um, you know, they're reading the heavy romance type stuff. And then the older people were also reading the heavy romance type stuff. But I, I don't know. There's just a distinction between the fics that we read, and I'm losing my train of thought. But we have to take responsibility for what we write because what we write is directed at a young audience. And so I think it's very important that, you know, if you're going to write about sex in the Harry Potter universe, you ought to take it seriously. You know, if it's a part of a serious novel length thick, it's not a parody or something. Yeah. It ought to be taken seriously because it's not something that you just, you know, you don't just roll over, you know, one morning and you go, you know what? Being a virgin sucks. <laughs> I think I'll have sex and my life will be better. You know, it's just, it's not like that. So. Well, I think that's happened to everybody, but okay. Yeah. Well, that's true, but. Like, what worlds are you living? <sighs> that's not what I meant. Like, then, then you make that decision and that's not how it turns out. You know, it's not, oh, my life is suddenly so perfect. It's, oh my God, now I have to worry about, you know, 10,000 other things that I never had to worry about. Why are we talking about this? I can't remember. I have no idea. Hold on, backtrack. Jen, sex all the time. Melinda, 17-year-old son. I don't know. Why are we we on this? Oh, Harry woke up and then he wasn't having sex with Ginny. Right. Continue thought. Good going. Okay. And you wonder why these episodes, you know... Are six hours long. (laughs) We're like a Stephen King miniseries. Go on. Okay. No, I finished my thought. I'm done. So. Your thought was you were glad they weren't having sex. Yes. I think Melinda did a good job in not taking the road very well traveled. Harry <laughs> woke up and, like, didn't remember how he got there, though, didn't he? Yeah. He's like, um, where am I? <laughs> so you're glad like that Ginny. So basically, you're glad that Ginny didn't take advantage of Harry during Right, this. right, okay. right. Well, then later on, when they're on actually on the Horcrux hunt, they're not sleeping with each other either. So. I think that was my point. Ooh, I have a thought on that. We'll get to that later. Okay. Okay. All right. I have done on my notes that I really want to talk about Harry and Molly, and I did that. Do you have anything else to add? Um, for this chapter? Well, I'm, not I'm sure. really. We've been on the chapter for two minutes. You have to have more to add. Um. Oh, Harry and Malfoy. Harry and Malfoy. Do you think uh, before you answer these questions, you're like, okay, move on, chapter eight? <laughs> no, sometimes I do, and sometimes I'm just like moving on up. <laughs> All right. Now, you have to keep me on track. You know me. I'm like, ooh, track. shiny. All right. Here's my. Here's one thing I enjoyed about Malfoy. Then I'll turn it over to you. Alfoy, um, Alfoy. Okay, let's call him by his real name. All right. Malfoy apparently enjoys antiquing. Apparently. I, I just found that I, I would never have pictured, you know, Harry throwing a vase up in the air and Malfoy scurrying over and grabbing it because this is worth a fortune. Like, I, I was, I was like. I've never seen... Because I was raised to understand the value of a galleon. Whatever. Shut up. No, like, here's the thing. I never got the impression that he was very into, you know, the noble Malfoy family, you know, tradition. And the fa- I, I never saw Lucius really instilling in him the importance of, you know, old pots with, with you know, the family crest. I just thought that was... I got the impression, or at least my impression of of the Malfoys, is everything they have is new. They only buy the best. 
you know, if it's a day old, they replace it and get something newer. Like, I never really saw the side of him that was really, really into old, dusty crap. And that's yeah. just, that's how I would have pictured him describing it. I love old stuff. Like, I, I, I wish I had more old stuff. I usually, you know, am not a pack rat, so I usually don't keep my stuff until it gets old. But if I ever find something old, I'll probably hang on to it. That doesn't make much sense, but I'm going to leave it in the episode because it gives you insight into me as a person. <laughs> it helps our audience get to know you better. Because yeah, they don't hear from me enough. But yeah, I mean, what do you think? Oh, I, I, you know, I agree with you. He's kind of very nouveau riche. They they all act very nouveau riche, the purebloods, which is kind of interesting for European, for what is essentially European um, aristocracy. So, um, but I, it wasn't necessarily the the throwing of the, you know, it's Harry and Malfoy's um, strained but very mature exchange. You know, this is how a grown man who doesn't like somebody handles the situation. You know, this is how a grown man who needs information from another person handles the situation, you know, where he says, you know, you're living in my house <laughs> and you're only here by my good graces. So you just need to make sure you stay on my good side or you're not going to have anywhere to live. You know, so. Oh, Don't you love the moment where Harry's like, by the way, I really do own the house. We found the will. And I, here's the thing. I thought, that, you know, Malfoy, you know, being the pot collector was a little weird. But I love the point where Harry throws the pot up in the air and it shatters into a million pieces. And Malfoy, you know, the guy who apparently, you know, enjoys going to auctions, you know, is just devastated at the lot. Like, he crumbles to the floor and he starts, like, trying to, like, pick up all the pieces and put the thing back together. And I just love the fact that Harry's like, oops. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Daddy will buy you a new one when he gets out of prison. Come on. Yeah, I don't know. I have a hard time with Draco. I don't like Draco. Oh. Even Rinna should team up. You have never been in an episode with Rinna, have you? Um, You know, I was looking the other day, and I don't think I have. Well, Rinna from the future, what do you think? I will start talking about Chapter 5. Um, the main thing that I wanted to say about this chapter is that this is another um, chapter where another story, I should say, where we get to see a, a strong character in Fleur. It's something that, obviously, we all commented about when we did the, uh, when we did the, after the end for our first story, because, again, there was a time where they made Fleur, instead of being, you know, some prissy princess, they made her into, you know, a fighter, and here she is, she's fighting in her wedding dress, and, you know, a weaker woman would have been cowering in the shadows at that point. And I really like the way that they're able to do that in this instance, that they made her into a fighter. I really like that. I love how Harry is the one to help strengthen the wards, and I love the way that they, they bring that in. He is able to do this. He's able to strengthen the wards because he loves this place so much. And... You know, I wish I had a home like that, that I felt so strongly about, that I just loved enough, that I had all these positive feelings about. I mean, I think that's just amazing that he was able to find that, because even in real life, so many of us just don't ever find that. Of course, Ron has to take the blame for not being there at, at Harry's side um, during the Death Eater battle. That's just the kind of person he is. You know, he's the one that's going to follow Harry till the end of the earth. He's the sidekick he's the faithful best friend and and he's just you know he's so upset because he's not there to to be with harry when the fighting hit and he's upset and and hermione's upset as well but i think ron took it a little harder than she did 
and of course you have to love the fact that Fred decides that he's going to cover up the mess on his robe with all the flowers. I think that's just amazing. And I can, I mean, that's something you can totally picture from one of the Weasley brothers, one of the Weasley twins, I should say. You know, here we go, everything's all ruined, I've got flowers on my robe. There we go. A nice way to cover up everything else that's going wrong. And everyone knows that there's no love lost, in my opinion, on Draco. I I don't care for him as a character, and I agree with... Obviously, I don't think Harry's reaction um, is in the wrong. I really think that it's very much keeping in his character, which is something I like about this whole story. It's very consistent with the characters that we see in the books. There's nothing, you know... I guess the way I've always seen fan fiction is it's you take the characters and you put them into different situations. You don't make them into different people. And that's one thing that I really, really liked about this story is that the characters stay so true to who they are in canon. But I really think that his reaction is very true. And But, you know, Remus is a good point. And, and it's the thing I was saying about Draco. Uh, and after the end, obviously, I was very vocal about that. It's he is he's in it for his own high and he's not in it he's not going to turn to the side of good um i I will go out on on the record and say i will eat my copy of the book if draco turns good at the end of half-blood of of deathly hallows and not i'm not saying if he comes over to the side of good because he might do that he might do that but he would do it not because he suddenly has a change of heart he'll do it because he wants to save his own skin so if draco has a magical change of heart somewhere in, in in deathly hallows i volunteer to eat my copy of the book but i really like these reactions here i think they're very much keeping with the characters so we've we've moved into chapter six and I understand why Harry had to go here by himself. It's something that when you face something like this, you face your parents' graves for the first time. It's something that you want to do alone. And he's always been surrounded by people, and we know that he doesn't, you know, he's not doing this to run away from Ron and Hermione. He's not doing this to so that they stay home and don't come with him on the Horcrux hunt because he's, by this point, really resigned himself to the fact that they're going to be there with him. But this is just something that he needs to do himself. And I mean, and I understand that. And of course, we have to find Wormtail again here because, you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, yeah, he just has to turn up. He's the rat that turns up in the rubble. So, which, yeah, rat in the rubble, that'd be a good name for a punk band. Anyway, and I'm sorry, but if I had found out that there was somebody spying on me at, at my home, I suppose if I was Harry, you know, I, I can imagine, obviously it's not articulated here because this is a family-friendly story, but, you know, you've got to think, oh, God, if I was doing something inappropriate or thinking something inappropriate <laughs> or something like that, oh, my God, somebody was watching me. And, uh, yeah, that would suck. And then we come to the big revelation of the story, which is the fact that Harry is himself the seventh Horcrux, which we, we found out, obviously, after the fact from JKR that this is not going to be the case in canon, that Harry is, in fact, not a Horcrux, but obviously this was written before we learned that little uh, snippet of information. And honestly, I think he uh, he doesn't flip out quite as much as, as I would have expected when I first read, you know, the story. And in, in some other stories where this is the principle or the idea that he does do a spectacular job of flying off the handle, but will just 
obviously in this story he seems a little bit more resigned to it, which I thought was an interesting take. And then Harry gets to say goodbye to his parents, and it's a sad thing, and it's something, you know, he's looking for guidance. He wants it from, from somewhere, and he gets it from Remus, and I really like that. I really, really like that. And of course, when Harry runs into Draco, he has to turn into a into a seven-year-old boy. You know, oh, this belongs to you. I'm going to break it on the floor. Nah, 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 nah. And I, I, I don't know. I love that Harry. He did, he never had siblings, and even within the the Weasley family, he's always had a very positive reaction to it. That these kids are, are in the same cohort, they're contemporaries, and they hate each other. So they're going to pick on each other like this, even you know, as soon as they can. And you can tell that Harry's just doing it to get under Draco's skin, which obviously he you know, succeeds in for breaking the vase, but I just thought it was funny that he did that. Anyway. And then there's, of course, the requisite Weasley family squabbling. Gotta love it. And of course, the easiest way to slip something under Mr. Weasley's nose when they're terrassing through the house is they're having an argument about the cannons. And, you know, you can almost see Molly Weasley rolling her eyes at this point, because Lord knows I would have been. And I know I'm kind of flying through this. I guess I just... I don't know. I don't really have any unusual comments to make about it. It's its a good story. I really like it. It's very consistently written. and But at the same time, this is kind of the build it up. And it can't all be after the end where we jump right in in the middle of the story. You know, some of them have to actually start at the beginning and, and ease our way through the rest of the, the exposition before we can get to the... Get the action, you know? Here's the thing. I am not a big Star Wars fan. I have seen the movies. My girlfriend is very... Or my fiancé, by the time, you know, we... Is is it... Okay, fiancé and fiancé. Which one's the guy and which one's the girl? The one with the one E Mm -hmm. is the man. And you put an accent aigu over it. And then the one with two E's is the female. It's the woman. So she'll be your... Fiance with two E's. All right. Well, my my my. But here's the thing. My woman likes Star Wars, and we watched you know the 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 um, the History Channel you know special on Star Wars, and she was so excited that I was watching it. That at one point, I leaned forward on the couch to grab my glass of water off the floor, and she asked me where I was going. <laughs> like really into it. So I'm I'm going to watch them again, and I I just don't think I was in the right frame of mind. That's it. But I'm really going to try and get into them. But here's the thing: Harry is so enraged at the end of Half Blood Prince that the only way I can when he's like when he he flies after Snape and Snape knocks him down and he's under the Crucio curse from the Death Eater and Snape is getting away. I'm just picturing like the scene from the third Star Wars movie where Darth Vader is on fire on the ground and like like I'm picturing. You know, Harry unleashed with rage and, you know, just over everything that's happened. I know if you read the story, you're not going to see that scene in there, but that was my, you know, in <laughs> retrospect impression of it. So, you know, Draco was a part of that. And obviously Harry knows that Draco wasn't going to kill Dumbledore. And he does recognize that Draco is somewhat of a weak character. So I think the fact that Harry now has new responsibilities and Harry's had 
time to calm down, and especially since he was going to rip Draco's head off at the end of Chapter 5, and now in Chapter 7, you know, he's been to Godric's Hollow, and he's been, you know, more centered and more grounded. I think the fact that he doesn't kill Draco, and the worst he does is destroy a pot, shows that, that Harry has really come a long way since Half-Blood Prince, and since, you know, even a couple chapters ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's just... Harry makes leaps and bounds in the story as far as personal and maturity goes, and um, yeah, so um, I, I don't really have much more to say on that right. particular aspect of it. The next thing that happens, of course, is that Harry um, sits down and explains to his friends what is happening, and he has to admit, mm-hmm. you know, that he's a horcrux. And um, Jenny sneaks in, which I think is absolutely perfect. Well, I love Ron too. Ron's like, beat it, beat it, Jenny. Like he, like here's the thing. Be- Ron is annoying when he's really overprotective and stubborn, and you know puts Jenny down. And the and the thing is, over a good story, Ron will overcome that. And the problem is, is that we like fan fiction, so the characters always reset themselves at the end. So I feel like it's Groundhog Day, and I've seen Ron do this fifty five thousand times, and I really want to just kill him at this point. And this is a great interaction to see between these two characters because that's their arc. Ginny stops being, you know, the little girl in everyone's eyes and turns into somebody powerful, you know, who can influence the world. And Ron, you know, kind of sees people for what they are and not what his, you know, preconceptions assume that they are. That said, we read fan fiction. We've seen this story 55,000 times. And when Harry, I'm sorry, when Ron is a jerk to Ginny, I just want to kill him. I agree. <laughs> this is part of the downside of reading fanfiction is you do kind of see the same ideas over and over and over and over again. And by the end of it, you just want to smack some of them, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I almost killed so, Charlie last time, so it's it's Ron's Yeah, funny. we're all good. Oh, I'm going to try and take Bill out later, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously they have that interaction, and Harry acts as mediator. He tells Jenny, look, there's some things I need to tell you, you and only you, but there are some things I need to tell just Ron and Hermione, and I need you to be okay with that. Please don't be mad at me. And she's like, this is about the Horcruxes. Yeah. And, and, and at that point, Harry's like, yeah, whatever, come on in. So... Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Harry's not telling the order. He's, you know, holding the secret into himself. You know, just... You know, if all you can think of is if anything happens to Harry, no one's going to know what to do because he's not leaving like a note with you know the word Horcrux or anything like nothing. If Harry fails, you know the world's over. But Hermione's like, "Hey, Jenny, let's go talk about some Horcruxes." So, yeah. So, yeah. That was your analysis um, of this chapter. That was my analysis of this chapter. I don't really have a whole lot to say about this. I'm really happy. I like Melinda's uh, Jenny. She has spunk. You have spunk. I hate spunk. Oh, Mary Tyler Moore. Love it. Okay. Um, I've seen the episode. I have it on DVD. You do? I do. Yay! Wonderful. I think I have the first four seasons, but carry on. Um, they, of course, have the same conversation that basically Ryan and I just had about the Horcruxes. And... Um, <laughs> uh, I don't. I there's not really much to say. There's just a lot of exposition. 
you know. Well, here's what I thought was important in there. You know, number one, you have the fact that Ginny knows more than you know she's she's led on, and I like the fact that Harry knows Ginny enough that she's acting cool and suave and sophisticated, but he can tell she's nervous because there's certain things that Ginny does with her hands and with her posture when she's nervous, and she's basically trying to lay it on thick because she wants to be accepted by everybody. You see, you know, Hermione deal with the fact that she gave the secret away because they needed help. And you and you know, Hermione has to deal with the fact that she gave away Harry's secret, but she did it because she was the only one that could because they needed those extra resources. And you know, Harry can't bring Dumbledore's trust, but Hermione could share the secret. Now, two problems I have with that is at some point you have to think that Harry swore Hermione to secrecy. And yeah. the fact that she... Essentially what the scene tells us is that Harry, Hermione would rather break Harry's trust than have Harry break Dumbledore's. And it keeps Harry pure, and she's the one that, that squeals. And, and, you know, that's obviously the intention of the scene, and she does it for a good reason. I found the reason to be somewhat manufactured that she could bring, you know, books from Grimmauld Place when she goes with her mother for meetings back to the borough so that, so that she could have resources. I mean, I'm sure it makes sense... I think that from a character angle, if you're going to have Hermione, you know, break Harry's trust, you would want it to be for something a little bit more substantial. And I I, I think I would have preferred a situation where Hermione told Ginny because Hermione knew that Ginny was necessary for Harry to, to, to do this and knew that Harry would never do it, but that she needed to basically get Ginny into the mix you know, for the good of Harry, and the only way you know she could do that was just to to you know tear the bandaid, pull her in, and then just let you know the chips fall where they may. Yeah, the reason makes sense. I mean, yes, would Ginny go to Grimmauld Place? Maybe. Would Hermione need books? Maybe. But I'm sure there must have been some other plot way around that. I just it felt plotty rather than natural, as you know earlier scenes. You know. Voldemort finds out that Harry's a Horcrux, you know, when he goes into him at the end of Weather of the Phoenix, and that's why he stayed away in Half Blood Prince, and that's why his plans shifted. That felt totally natural. This felt a little yeah, yeah, bit like a plot device. But I, I, I thought those two particular scenes—one with Ginny, one with Hermione—were very important. And the third one is that you know, at this point, I'm kind of with Harry here. I'm like, oh my god, Harry's going to die. Is this going to be a fic about how Harry deals with that? Is there going to be um, Deus Maxima at the end, and you know, something will come in and save the day? I don't know. Maybe he won't be a Horcrux. Maybe you know, the crib is a Horcrux. I don't know. You know, yeah. I was thinking of something along those lines, and I love the fact that Ginny points out, you know, look, you know, the ring was destroyed, but the book was still fine. You know, it's something inside you. It doesn't have to destroy you. You know, it doesn't work. You know, an inanimate object is a horcrux, and a person is a horcrux. They have two completely different properties. You don't have to die. I like the point that Harry points out that he doesn't want to be like the long bombs. He doesn't want to be a broken shell if the horcrux is removed. But Ginny's the first one to give both Harry and me hope that there could be another way out of this for Harry. And when you think about it, and Ginny says it perfectly, I had one of those things in me too. I had Tom in me, and I'm okay. Then I'm kind of sitting up, I'm like, you know, you get this impression that, okay, the ring got destroyed, the book got destroyed, so obviously Harry has to get destroyed. But when you really think about it, there's a lot more there. So what Ginny really gave Harry at this point was what he didn't have before, hope. And Ron Hermione gave him hope. And it doesn't mean they're going to win, and it doesn't mean they know the answers, but there's a chance, and that's pretty much putting Harry back to where he was before. It's kind of like 
if you're a person that you know you think you're susceptible to a particular type of cancer and you don't know if you're going to get that particular type of cancer but you know it's a risk and you have this risk you know like weighing down on you a little bit as you go through your life by being diagnosed with it it doesn't mean you're going to you know not live a very long active life it just means that this may be the thing that will one day get you and you kind of see harry in that position now whereas before he knew there was something coming he didn't know what and then he thought the thing that was coming was going to kill him and now he has a chance of beating the thing which is what he had all along now the thing just has a name and i i I just thought that was an interesting you know little circle that harry went through his nice little circular arc he went through over the last couple chapters and i'll shut up now You're doing fine. <laughs> you're like I don't really have much else to add. You're like I just did my laundry. <laughs> yeah. Chapter eight: An uneasy alliance. Uh, this is you know the chapter begins with news that I'm undecided on this particular bit. Hogwarts will be closed. Yes. <sighs> I I think this is the most likely outcome for the canon. To be quite honest with you. As do I. So, I think that they're definitely not going to go back there, and there's the possibility that the school could be open just without Ron, Hermione, and uh, Harry. And you know, if that is the case, okay, then we have a situation where the three of them are making a sacrifice, or they're giving up their last year of school when they could otherwise have it. I mean, the alternative is, and what I particularly like about the idea of the school being closed is, the school has been their refuge for seven years. The school is now taken away. They can't go back to the life they had before until they finish this. Right. And I like the fact that you can't just deny it. Plus, you know, from various plot, you know, for various plot reasons, you know, you need the school to be closed because you need Ginny to be available and you need, you know, Zachariah Smith to be going to Bobaton. And you you need all these different factors to be playing themselves out. And I'm sure we get to the school at some point anyway, because I'm sure half of the Horcruxes are buried in the graveyard or something. So. Don't tell me if they are. I don't want to know. I'm not going to. Why do you... I'm not giving anything away. I don't remember anything about this story. So I'm glad you're on here with me. (laughs) Well, I I remember things that I read today, that I reread today, but I don't... I'm so bad about stuff. Okay. So so Dumbledore's brother, a.k.a. Goat Boy, has bequeathed uh, Dumbledore's possessions, uh, you know, in part to Harry... And he essentially receives the pensive, the memories that we saw in Half-Blood Prince, the strange object that we discussed earlier, and the remaining Horcruxes. And the, and the remaining... Yeah. He gave him all the remaining Horcruxes. He just has to... Here, have fun. Destroy him. The end. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of the very powerful moments I thought at this point in the story is the moment where Ginny is given the diary. And there's many moments where I can really picture like the very dramatic music coming on, like the very solemn character driven music coming on if yeah. this were like a play. You know, one of them being Harry walking up to James and Lily's graves, and another um would be this moment where Ginny, you know, takes the book. Now this is the book that terrified her. And what I really love that Melinda does is over the course of the next few chapters that we're gonna get into, you know, in, in the next episode, the you know, she really fills in the gaps that Joe Rowling left to show that Ginny has been on, you know, a very, 
difficult hard journey. Road. Yeah, yeah. Hardrow herself. She's been dealing with this diary since she was eleven. And like we've been talking about before, Joe really drives around that plot point and Ginny was, you know, excited, you know, to be done with the with the, with the diary at the end of Chamber of Secrets. But I think that weakens the character. I think the character has to pull something from that. You can't put an eleven year old girl through that, you know, for a year and then have, you know, her just walk away and be fine. And I think it's very powerful that um this is something that, you know, this has been something that she has feared. And Harry gives her the book and she holds the diary. And this is the book that is the source of everything that happened to her. And this is the source of all of that pain, all of that humiliation. And the, the truth is, as Harry says, you, you be them. You did it. Yeah. And I just think what a great moment for that character is the little short declarative sentences. You beat him. And it's literally, it's, you know, how many people in their lives get to touch and hold the thing that they're afraid of? You're afraid of, you know, lightning. You're afraid of, you know, being alone in life. You're, you know, you're afraid of, you know, walking down dark alleys. You can't really confront your fears a lot of the time. And Ginny is actually able to hold this thing and say, it's just a book. Yeah. And I just think it's that's... power over me is is no longer there. I think it's a powerful moment for the character. I think it's a necessary moment for the character in the story because you have to um, establish for the audience that Jenny is a strong person in her own right, that she deserves to be with Harry, you know, that she's going to be okay on this Horcrux hunt, even though she's younger than all the other ones. You, you know, you have to, at some level, we're always looking for things to justify the ships that we write and um, or, or providing, providing justification and um, I think this is part of it is you know she is able to be with Harry because she has overcome this very similar experience to what Harry is going through and they can relate to each other in a way that nobody else can and it just brings you back to that moment and I want to say is it Order of the Phoenix mm-hmm. where um, Jenny where he's saying, you know, you don't know what it's like to be possessed by possessed by Voldemort, and Jenny says, uh, "Yeah, I think I have a pretty good idea," you know, yeah. and uh, that this kind of always go back to the canon on this. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, why I know that Jenny may not play like a huge role in, you know, Deathly Hallows. My response is, why not? She she she's so necessary for what you know, Harry becomes, and she's so necessary for that character, and I know, I know, I know Joe's going a different way, but you get attached to Ginny, and you get attached yeah. to her strength, and, and what a story to tell, an 11-year-old girl, you know, beat the demons, and it's just, it's just such a great story, and you love where the characters end up, that you, know, you just want them to be around, and you want them to live happily ever after. Yeah, I, you know, and maybe maybe Joe will bring Jenny back in, and, uh, Deathly Hallows, and she'll play a serious Hallows! Hallows, whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm from Kansas, I can't say Hallows. Yeah, and one thing I just want to point out, too, is I'm just picturing a scene from Deathly Hallows where Ginny shows up at the end with Dumbledore's army and saves the day, and there's like a death either going at Ron, and all of a sudden Molly appears out of nowhere and like beats the guy with her frying pan. I don't know, I just, I had that image in my head and I can't get rid of it right now. Right. <laughs> that was funnier than the little haha you just gave me. <laughs> oh, God. Moving on. All right. Uh, Horcrux hunt begins, and they need to find the orphanage where Tom Riddle grew up, because Harry has, like he said before, a sense. Something is up with this orphanage. We need to go there. He's being driven by that gut instinct, you know, possibly related to the Horcrux in him. 
and they need to find the orphanage so Hermione, you know, thinks her parents can be helpful by looking it up on their computer, which of course is the obligatory fan fiction scene where Ron discovers what the internet is. <laughs> oh goodness, I love it. Well, it could be even better if they were on the internet and they discovered Ron and Hermione fan fiction. <laughs> Has that ever been written in fan fiction, Oh yeah, oh yeah. This well, fan- not, in, not in this fandom, but in other fandoms I think they've done you know where they're they find themselves online they find themselves online somebody should do that as an outtake well, that blew my oh mind my that blew my mind on studio 60 a few weeks ago where alice and janney was talking about the west wing to the actors on studio 60 who were on the west wing uh the time space continuum blew like up. exploded yeah i know yeah and we're all Scary. we're all eating frogs yeah just it completely blew up the universe on that one um, I just thought that it's like there's scenes that you can tell that never I, I could never picture happening in the canon because I think the canon takes care to remain in you know a very you know Joe stays in Joe's world Joe stays part. in Joe's world except at the Dursleys and I really can't picture you know Hermione ta- I don't know but what I did like about that scene is Hermione talking about how she feels so disconnected from her parents' lives and, you know, her parents essentially lost Hermione when they sent her to the Hogwarts. And they probably thought Hogwarts was the best thing for her. And they must be frantic, you know, that she's involved in the war. And they literally never see her. And Harry feels guilty. And Ginny catches the fact that Harry feels guilty. And, you know, she would do it for you anyway. And it just... I just think that's just... I've never actually considered that before, that Harry, Harry would feel guilty that Hermione's his friend. And it just shows, you know, the depth of, of guilt that this character's capable of. Yeah, it's almost... Never mind, I was going to make a really bad joke there. Um, oh, come on, come on, come on. No, no, no. I, he's got enough guilt he could almost be Catholic. Um, uh, <laughs> um, we apologize to the Midwest. All right. Hey, now. Okay. I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he, okay. Harry decides he needs to go talk to Draco. No, you, no, you mean Darren. Darren, yes. No, I'm <laughs> sorry, you mean David. <laughs> that cracks me up. Or is it Man, Dudley? I love when it's Dudley. Happy? I love when he calls him Dudley. <laughs> <laughs> Are you the? Were you like I was having fits? I was laughing so hard. <laughs> He's like, it's Draco. <laughs> I knocked on your door, David. <laughs> I love what a little snot Draco is in this. He's apparently an antique dealer <laughs> who gets very irritated if you don't call him by the proper name. He's very much a yuppie. He like really a is. Yuppie pure blood. No, what he like, is. He's like the GQ guy. You know, I'm sorry, yeah. that was Voldemort from the trailer. I was going to say he was the GQ guy from the trailer to order the Phoenix, <laughs> but that was, in fact, the Dark Lord himself. Oh, my goodness. I'm so nervous about this movie. If they mess up this book, I'm never going to watch another Harry Potter movie again. But then I said that after I watched Prisoner of Azkaban, so... Hey, save me from saying liar. All right. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the give and take here you have at this. You have Harry, who needs the information from Draco. And you have a Draco who, as we always know, this character will, if you need to borrow $5 from lunch, he will somehow make you name your firstborn after him. He will use anything to get anything. And he needs He's very manipulative. Right. He needs information from Draco and Draco's not talking. And Harry's response is basically, then you can leave and we'll bring your mother down, and if she won't give the information, then she can leave as well. Now, will Draco call Harry's bluff? Because if you think if you think of it, how important is Draco to the cause? He's the only source of death either information, him and Narcissa. 
and they need him so desperately, would Harry throw him out on his butt? Maybe. Maybe. Would, would, the, would, the, would the order ever allow him? Probably not, especially not well, at this stage. I don't think the order has... Uh, you know, here's the thing: is at the order, the order at this point is kind of at Harry's mercy, because uh, he owns the house. So, you know, if he wants somebody not there, then they have to be not there. And I don't think he's going to necessarily bow to the whims and the orders of the order of the Phoenix anymore. Because the, you say bow to the whims there, of the order of the order, order whims and the orders of the order of the Phoenix. That's a great line. Thank you. No I had to think about that. Um, what was I saying? Um, <laughs> I had to think about that, but forgot every other thing I was talking about. Uh, 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 bow to the whims and the orders of the Order of the Phoenix anymore, because Dumbledore is not there. And I don't think there's very much... There's not anybody left that's a clear leader. So I think by default, they're going to have to bow to Harry's wishes. You know. I never get the sense they see him as almost a facto leader. I get the sense that they know he knows stuff and they need to find out what he knows. And I like the way Kingsley's written because he's someone who's used to getting what he wants and he wants information. And he's not getting, he's almost kind of like Malfoy, but like in a good way. Like he's working for the right side, but he doesn't like being out of the loop. And if you think about it, Harry always hates being out of the loop himself. So you can definitely. Yeah, you can, you, you can see. <laughs> You're going, Harry, come on, man. But um, at the same time, Dumbledore did tell him to keep his mouth shut about it, so he's kind of in a catch twenty two. Yeah. You know, you don't, you just don't break promises to dead people. It's like on the list of things you don't do. <laughs> There's a list of things you don't do, and breaking yeah, promises to dead you don't, people is on them. You don't spit into the wind. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You just, and you don't break promises to dead people. I need to spend some time in Kansas. <laughs> You've never heard that song? You don't no. tug on Superman's cape. You don't spin into the wind. You Blue don't pull moon. the mask off the old Lone Ranger. And you don't mask around with Jimbo. Moon. Okay, we just lost half of our viewers. We have we just lost half of our listeners right there. Half of our viewers, yeah. Half of our viewers. There's people staring at their iPods right now saying, what's going on? God, I don't understand. Yeah, I thought I was listening. Okay. <clears throat> okay, back to back <laughs> All right, so you have Draco, you know, easily able to call Harry's bluff, but he doesn't. Draco gives in, and Draco cracks first, and Draco talks, and Draco tells Harry what he knows about Death Eaters potentially guarding random locations. And you find that, essentially, Voldemort, not wanting to tip anyone off to the fact that there are Horcruxes out there, because the Horcruxes hold the key to his, you know, potential defeat, staffed it out to the morons. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. It reminds me of a cartoon I used to see once, and I don't remember it, but the plotline was there was a bear who used to fly around in this big yellow plane and he would like haul cargo on it. And there are these other animal type creatures who like employed him and they like ran the business. I don't know. It was like people, but oh, they were animals. Yes. Tailspin maybe. Tailspin. And there was an episode <laughs> where they had, the, where they won like a billion dollars or whatever. And they just needed the ticket to get dropped off at the post office. So they had, the only guy they could have do it was the moron guy, but they're figuring, we'll just tell him it's not important. Cause if we tell him it's important, he'll somehow screw it up. Right. Right. It just reminds me of that. The dopes will do it. They'll never ask questions. <laughs> questions. 
Exactly. But, you know, it's a smart strategy for um, uh, Voldemort. You don't want to give that task to Lucius Malfoy because Dumbledore's going to know about it in a heartbeat. You want to find... He's actually in prison, too, so that would probably... Well, I met... You know, like, when he first started that, you just... Every time I open my mouth... He's been in prison since Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> Not since... The end of Order of the Phoenix. True. The end of Order of the Phoenix. So oh, here's he is, a question. How long is he... Years? But hasn't he only been guarding the Horcruxes since the end? Maybe. I got this... Although as- you would think that he would have some, like, default protection in there anyway. Well, here's the question. Like, how long has Goyle been standing there watching the damn thing? Goyle builds like a little hut for himself out of like <laughs> leaves he finds from the corner. He's been living off of beetles. <laughs> <laughs> the wonder his son looks constipated all the time. He hasn't had a proper balanced meal in like five years. <sighs> Not sure where I was going with that. I just wanted to factor Goyle and constipation into the show. <laughs> Great. All right, so what we find out is that the dopes have been staffed out. This is a very important assignment. And we also find out that... And here's the thing. I, what I appreciate about the story is you're putting Harry and Draco into a situation together. And I sense over the course of the story that they're not going to become friends, but they may understand each other more. And I think that's one of the important things about fan fiction. They put these characters in places that I don't particularly think the canon will. And if you... You know, we're getting to a year like none other next, and a year like none other is really going to focus on Harry and Snape, and do they come to an understanding? It's got to feel real. It's got to feel natural. So, you know, to have Harry and Draco, you know, in a room together and these characters to test each other, you need to have something natural happen that will let these characters learn about each other, but do it in a way that doesn't piss me off because it feels fake. And I think they really do you know and by they you mean Melinda no actually I was actually talking about the characters here's the thing Draco brags about killing Dumbledore and about you know accomplishing his mission and and Harry's like oh, I don't think so <laughs> right and and my confusion on that is everyone seems to believe Harry that Snape was the one that did it Snape's a wanted man now so obviously they're not looking at Harry saying oh you foolish little child. Of course Snape didn't do this thing. So everyone, that's kind of gone from the storyline. People believe Harry. So Draco should know that somehow that word leaks. Maybe he thought the other Death Eaters did it. Draco, here's my question. Draco is is like boasting that he killed Dumbledore, or he accomplished his mission. But everyone knows that, Dra- that Snape is the one that did it. So either Draco's out of the loop, or he thinks that the word spread... Because he, he didn't know that Harry was up on, on the tower is the bottom line. So Harry is able to use the fact that I know you weren't going to do it. I know Dumbledore offered you a way out. I know, I know, I know. And you can just see Draco crumble because that was not supposed to happen. No one was supposed to know that. So I thought that was an interesting point for the two characters. Yeah. I'll agree. <laughs> I um, I I think even Joe puts Harry and Draco in this power... In this, power play, it's definitely possible we're going to have a power play next book you know, between these two boys whose relationship is kind of like that of Snape and James um, in that they instantly disliked each other and there wasn't any rationale for it, I mean later we get rationale for it, but the first part it wasn't, you know, Draco can play a very important role in this next um, book and uh, I I like how Melinda brings him into play here, especially um, 
bringing in in uh, Moody to deal with Draco again because one of my favorite mo- moments in the books is of course when Moody turned him into a bouncing ferret. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> Snape at the end of the chapter because Snape. Here's the deal, and I've said this you know throughout the podcast. Snape is not good. Snape is not evil. You know, people simplify it into he is you know. One thing or another. He is Mother Teresa, or he's the guy that beat up the 101-year-old woman that was on the news a couple months ago. I mean, he is yeah. he is not one, he is not the other. I think that Snape is not a nice man. <laughs> I think that, you know, I personally believe that he is well, not... I think to say that he's not a nice man is a little bit of an understatement. Yes, he is not a very nice man. He killed Grandpa, and that is never, that is never you know something which bodes well for you no i the the problem i have with a lot of like snape centric fics is that they 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 grossly simplify where where um snape is in in the story you know because given either situation he's been lying to one very powerful wizard for a very long time so he I mean, he's not an uncomplicated character to be right. to, to be sure, um, and I don't think that you can really understand his. We won't understand his motivations until we know exactly for sure what side he's on. And I think I, Melinda's um, uh, Snape is is kind of interesting, actually. I uh, he has a moment where he's explaining his motivations to um, Voldemort. And you've got to imagine that's a pretty rough conversation, and he's very. I mean, I would, I would, um, I would believe Melinda Snape is evil. That's the nice thing about this is she's not making it obvious right away what side um, he's on, and we won't know for a long time. Yeah, and I want to get into. And here's the thing: I haven't read any more Snape beyond uh, what we're going to discuss tonight, so I, I, I'm saying this not knowing the answer, but I, I'm really fascinated by Melinda Snape, but before I get to that, I just want to say, too, obviously we're taking you know a year like none other after the seventh Horcrux, and we're going to get into some Snape-centric uh, fan fiction. I think it's possible to, because the character, I think, is so dynamic, I think it's possible to have many different interpretations of the man. You can have him be someone who sold out the good side, but had a reason to do so. You can have him being someone who has, you know, supported Dumbledore all along and, like, a lot of us think, you know, killed Dumbledore because it was what Dumbledore would have wanted. Obviously, we're going to cover A Year Like None Other next, and that, you know, will be a Snape probably differently from the Snape that Melinda wrote. With most of the characters in Harry Potter, there are, especially the the quote-unquote evil ones, you know, Draco and, you know, Snape, and some of the characters with the bad sides, I think it is possible to write them both as good characters who have some redeeming qualities and maybe nasty guys but their you know their 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 goals are focused and i think it's possible to write them as you know quasi villains and people who are very dynamic interesting layered characters who made choices that harry and dumbledore never would have made so i think you can do a lot with these characters and there's a lot of range you can express here as a writer but i think it has to make sense and feel natural in the story so i think that even if you know you're you're writing completely different versions of the same character, it can make sense as long as you put the thought into it and put the base into it. So let's get to S- Snape um, as Melinda writes him, and 
this is why I really like this character that Melinda's created, and I've only seen him so far in, in you know, the one scene. Yeah. All right. You have essentially the expectation of the reader, which tell me if you agree with this, G. I think that most of the fans at this point think that Snape was working for the Order, that Dumbledore would not plead for his life, that when he had the hatred and the revulsion in his, you know, in his face and his eyes as he killed Dumbledore, that was based on him not wanting to do it and he hated the fact that he had to do it. I think that when Dumbledore was arguing with Snape in the woods, he was arguing with Dumbledore that he did not want to be put in this position of having to play both sides against the middle anymore because I think selfishly he just wanted to be done with that. But I think that Snape is primarily a character who is working for the Order. Would you agree or disagree? Um, I would agree. I, I think to say that you know that motive that that that's selfish is a little bit strong because I, I mean you're you're not playing around with Pee Wee Herman. You're messing with yeah. you know Lord Voldemort, and he's laid his if if he has been working for the Order, he's been laying his life on the line every day for the last you know several years. So. I mean, it's not that it's selfish. It's more that he's tired. Well, yeah, for his, uh, for, well, yeah, and selfish, you know, doesn't obviously need to, you know, it has a negative connotation to it, but it doesn't have to. I mean, you know, selfishly, you know, someone may, you know, have four kids and take care of them every day and selfishly may want to take a day off for themselves. It doesn't mean they're a bad person for doing it. It just means they're looking for their own self-interests at that time. Right, right. Um, So I think that's where a lot of the fandom is, too. And I That's th- where we're at now because it's a lot more comfortable for us. Right. You know, I think y- you can make an argument that, well, yeah, you know, Dumbledore is human. That's why he would plead for his life. You know, he was already weakened by the potion that he had to take to destroy the fake Horcrux. I mean, there was a lot that would end to that previous scene to where you can make an argument either way. And that's one of the most masterful things I think about Half-Blood Prince is that you're not really sure where everybody stands and it kind of is reminiscent also we made this point earlier in the podcast with um harry and and his trip to see lily and james and realizing that lily and james were about his age when he died when they died um you know we're we're all it's the circle of time is turning and we're coming back to the same position that lily and james were in that harry is trying to kind of make the same kind of decisions that Lily and James were having to make. Obviously, he doesn't have a wife, and his wife isn't pregnant with, you know, the chosen one or whatever, but... That seems you, very familiar. Yeah. Ugh. Please. And, um... <laughs> done so many times. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's a nice way to bring the story back, and I had a point I was making with this. You did very well, though. I lost it. It will come back to you. That's okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, we're coming back in this in this story, and, and Snape is coming back in the story to where he was, you know, before as well. So. All right. Let me read these two paragraphs, because this is what really jumped out at me about Melinda Snape. Now, this is Snape um, with Voldemort in his office, and I just have to tell you, you know, I think it's described as a castle where Voldemort is, you know, held up. I really hope he's not at Riddle Manor, because you think someone from the Ministry would have put, like, you know, like... You know, I mean, you know would how, hope so. Well, here's the thing. You know how Voldemort's got the morons out guarding the Horcruxes? You think, yeah. like, you know, like the Auror in training, they put a couple of those guys out at Riddle Manor just in case he showed up? I don't know. I would, I, you know, you would hope so, but that would just... Sometimes the characters in this fic aren't very... Or in these stories aren't very far-sighted. All right. Now, this is what jumped out at me. 
Yet you've said that you'd lost some of his trust toward the end. You said that you thought he was keeping something from you, Voldemort replied, his scarlet eyes narrowing into slits. Yes, Snape said, shifting uncomfortably. He didn't feel I was doing enough to learn what the Malfoy boy was planning. I was unable to reveal what I knew, and without Draco's cooperation, the stories I fabricated were proven false. As you know, Dumbledore always believed everyone could be saved. He'd hoped that I could offer the boy a chance to reform. Yes. I mean, let's look at the expectations that we have. We expect Dumbledore to be prompting Snape to go ahead and do whatever is necessary to maintain the flow of information to the order. And Snape is resisting. He doesn't want to be put in the middle anymore, and he doesn't want to be the person to gun down Dumbledore if necessary. That's what I took from the scene, and that's what I've been interpreting. Now, what Melinda has done here is Melinda has opened a different avenue here. And what she has done is she has changed the conversation to instead of Snape must continue what he's doing no matter the cost, it has gone down to Snape doesn't want to do what Dumbledore is asking. Snape is going in the complete other direction. When he's prompting him to save Draco and to bring Draco around, Snape is resisting that. And and basically, you know, it it changes the conversation to instead of, you know, Snape not wanting to turn against the order even in face, it comes down to Snape resisting the order. And that yes. and that really shows a Snape which may be working for Voldemort and maybe any other member of the order and you know, seeing Snape in this light would say Severus isn't working for us anymore. We should be concerned about this guy, but but Dumbledore wouldn't hear of it. Now go ahead to the you know, to the to the tower. There's a moment where Dumbledore tells Draco that Snape was looking out for him and Draco says something along the lines of you fool he wasn't working for you you know he he was he was working for Voldemort and he made a promise to my mother that you know he would look out for me and so forth and Dumbledore makes a comment that says well of course he would tell you that no we know that's true right we think we know that's true so either that is proof that Dumbledore didn't know what was going on or Dumbledore knows more than we as the audience do it's very confusing and there's no real way to you know know well- Here's my take on it, though, is that Snape is a very accomplished liar, and if you're a very accomplished liar, you understand that the best lies are the ones that are closest to the truth. And so he tells the truth as much as possible and only lies when it's necessary. So it's hard to keep track of where he is, you know, spying and where he is not, you know? So I... I think that's going to be part of the difficulty in Half-Blood Prince if Joe doesn't come right out and say, Snape is a good man, like in the first 20 pages. That's part of the difficulty is going to be separating, you know, when is he twisting things and when is he telling the truth. So it's going to be interesting. If that's if, you know, he lives long enough and Harry doesn't kill him. <laughs> Harry bats <laughs> you know? him over with his car. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. We're not... I, be, I personally believe that when Snape is being an ass, that's the true Snape. I personally believe that he is not as good as a lot of people think he is. No, and I don't And he is so not either. as bad as the Order thinks he is now after the death of Dumbledore. But, you know, with that said, I think that many fans, you know, jump 
and hold up, you know, the the page or Hagrid's describing the conversation he overheard with Dumbledore and says, "Look, you know, this is proof that Snape is, you know, resisting. He doesn't want to go through with it." When really, how does Dumbledore know? Oh, I'm going to get, you know, killed later in the year. I mean, he he doesn't know that for sure. So I think that what Melinda has done is Melinda has opened another argument, and Melinda hasn't come out at this point and given me an indication. Snape hasn't said anything that I know to be false. I don't have proof he's lying to Voldemort. So my first thought is maybe he's telling the truth. Or maybe he's, well, I mean, I, I just don't know. I mean, I think that Wormtail was, you know, fabricating the story of the Harry. That's my gut instinct so far. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I personally think that, like you just said, Snape is telling a lot of truth to Voldemort right here. And mm-hmm. I give Melinda tremendous credit for turning my expectations on themselves and making someone who believes that Snape is more or less loyal to the Order. I'm questioning that both in the thick and in the canon as a result of what she wrote. So Yeah. I, I it's interesting. I the nice thing about Snape and I, I guess I keep making the same point over and over and over again is it you know, nice people <laughs> don't have a grudge against somebody and then carry that on to their son. Yeah. You know? And you can make the argument, well, you know, he had to do that because you know, the Death Eaters, the, the, he couldn't be nice to him because then they would know he was, you know, working for the, whatever BS. You know, like, he's not a nice person. Well, that doesn't necessarily make him an evil person. I mean, That's I think, the- yeah, I mean, I think we're going to get into that a lot during the discussion of a year like none other next. But I will say this. Did it help Snape's cause as someone who is loyal to the Order, spying on Voldemort, to be completely trashing Harry Potter's reputation every day? Yes, that was probably very helpful if he was a spy to be seen as Harry Potter's, you know, arch rival or, you know, the guy who hates Harry Potter. Did he enjoy it? I bet he did. Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah, I mean, that's where I think you can have your cake and eat it, too. I think he could, you know, satisfy all the requirements on that one. Yeah. You know, he's he genuinely um, enjoys the times where he has got Harry in a corner and, you know, he can get him expelled. He can get him, you know, any time where he's displaying power over Harry, that's when he's he shows some true moments of happiness in this story. And, you know, you can you can fight me to death on that, Snape fans, but it's true. <laughs> he's just not a nice person. And I think, you know, making him a nice person is a is a mistake because you you ruin the essence of the character. So and, and I'll say this. My take on it will be, if you're going to make him a nice guy, you better damn well prove why he's a nice guy. You can't have him wake up in the morning, roll over, and, you know, go make Harry breakfast. There's got to be a rationale yeah, for it. Yeah, there has to be a rationale for exactly. it. Like, he has to be drugged. Uh, I'm not going to go that far, <laughs> but we have plenty of time to talk about it. By the way, uh, the part where Dumbledore tells Draco that, you know... Are course, we still in Half-Blood Prince now, Brian? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, in Half-Blood Prince, when Dumbledore tells Draco, of course Snape would tell you that, and Draco calls him a fool... I got that from someone, I think it was on the forum, so whoever you are on the forum, let me know and you get 10 house points, so. Woo-hoo! There you go! Please don't I, be a Ravenclaw, please don't be, be a Ravenclaw. Be Ravenclaw, be Ravenclaw! Woo-woo! Can I just Ravenclaw. point out the Slytherins are making like this huge comeback and I have no idea how that's possible? Well, well not that I don't know where it's possible, I don't know where they're doing it. <laughs> like, like, their numbers are climbing, I'm like, where are they getting these points? Maybe we should do an investigation. <laughs> I, think, I think they're like giving out points in the common room because it's the only other place they could be. Maybe. Maybe we should know. sneak in. I can't do that. I'm, too n- I'm a Hufflepuff. That's true. Come on. We need to put a Slytherin in charge. They wouldn't have any problem. Oh, God. <laughs> if they were in charge, we wouldn't be having this. Go- okay, moving on. That's true. Rena, do you have anything to say? So I'm moving into Chapter 8, and we learned that 
that the Hogwarts is not going to be reopening again, which is something that is a legitimate possibility. I mean, you know, I guess you kind of liken it, I kind of liken it anyway to the, I mean, this is a weird analogy, but almost like to the Virginia Tech incident um, from not too long ago where there was this horrible tragedy on the campus. And in that case, the people were able to band together, and obviously it's a different, you know, obviously the circumstances are different, but it's that kind of tragedy, that kind of just senseless, mindless violence. Only in this case, it's not coming from, you know, a, a seriously disturbed student. It's coming from the outside and from a group of seriously disturbed students who are willing to let that outside element come in. And so they're deciding not to reopen it, which is a difficult thing for people to decide. But, you know, they, they need time to heal, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, you know, structurally in some cases. They, they need that time to heal. So I don't think it's that surprising that Hogwarts doesn't reopen, but obviously everybody really, really, really wanted it to, which, I mean, I can't say that I blame them. I wanted it to open as well. And then we come to my my absolute favorite line in this entire story, because it's one of those things where it's an exercise in understatement. It is, um, it's about Bill, Bill Weasley. He'd become somewhat embittered toward the ministry since Greyback's um, attack. And it's like, duh, if you were attacked by a monster, you know, I think I'd be a little bitter too. I mean, obviously this is a bad thing that happened to him, and it was, you know, he thought it was co- going to cost him his life. His mother thought it was going to cost him his bride. You know, it was this big bad thing, and, and the ministry was trying to downplay the danger of everything that was going on. And so, you know, I love that. He's he's become somewhat embittered. Yeah, I would say he's he's got every right to be just as bitter as the day is long. I do really love how Moody insists on calling Draco by the different names, you know, Dudley and David, and I mean, I just, I love it. I love that he's putting him in his place in that little way. It just makes, it's, I just, I don't know, I like it. I really do like here at this point in the story how they're talking about Draco and whether or not he was capable of being redeemed. I think the idea of redemption is a big um, a big thing in these stories as well as in canon. I mean, the idea of redemption and whether or not it's possible. But I think that the motivation behind the redemption would be something that um, needs to be looked into because some people only redeem themselves because out of um, fear of fear of fear for their lives or fear for the lives of those they love. They don't really want to um, fight for the side of good. They want to fight to protect their own interests. Chapter 9. I just said that really amusingly. Guess who's coming to dinner? I love that line. Um, I'd like that they got to have, you know, they have the conversation with Ginny and Harry about, you know, Molly's brothers and about how you communicate with people who have gone and we've talked about that before and I don't want to repeat you know all of it but I love how they can contrast that scene to the scene when they're all at the table talking about sex in front of Molly yes <laughs> Fred and George oh my goodness I do I do like their Fred her um, Linda's Fred and George their little appearance 
I mean, it's a, it's a great little scene. I mean, it's it's Harry's nervous. They're going off for their apparition lessons, and of course, you know, they they turn the conversation to you know sex whenever possible, and of course, and of course, Harry, like Harry, like of course, like knocks over like all of the juice on the table, and he's like hyperventilating, and you know, Jenny's he, just like whatever. <laughs> I just, I mean, that's classic Harry. You know, defeat yeah. the Dark Lord, check. Not a problem. You know, like ride the dragon, check. You know have a conversation in front of your future mother-in-law you know he's profusely sweating and there's odor and it's, it's awful <laughs> there's odor there's odor now I, I'm sure there's lots of odors I'm sure there is alright now the scene with the operation license now this is when you really get some politics into the story and right you, you have Percy now Percy has you know on some level come back to the family and I love that, you know, there's the scene that we, I think we talked about last time. Um, if we didn't, we'll talk about it now where, you know, where Moody essentially puts, you know, Percy, you know, in an unforgivable curse. Like if he tells anyone where, where their headquarters is, he'll die. Like, yeah. <laughs> and we wonder why Molly gets pissed at Moody, but yeah. I mean, that's the level Percy's at now. He's back in, but essentially, like they strapped a time bomb to him, and if he go, if he does it again, he'll blow up. I mean, that's pretty serious, you know, probation. But Percy's back in, and of course, you know, you you get some more Percy here, and it's it's weird because I. I I keep, you know, after the end, really changed my impression of Percy into that, you know, maybe he doesn't have to be a complete ass. So when Percy's back into the story on some level of good grace, I, you know, I, I I do look to the character. So I just want to yeah. point out that so far we haven't killed him yet, and we're in chapter nine. Yeah, we haven't drop kicked him or anything, so he's doing pretty well. Let's talk about um, Rufus. I'm sorry. Do you want to keep no, going? No, no. Let's talk going. about let's talk about Rufus Scrimgeour because here's the difference I saw between Rufus Scrimgeour and Fudge. I saw Fudge as the political hack who would say anything necessary to keep his to keep his office. I think he would have surrendered to Voldemort if he thought he would get a boost in the polls. I think that all he cared about was, you know, he's like Leslie Nielsen, you know, please disperse. There is nothing to see here. Like he is the right. ultimate you know, weak politician, you know, he's all the stereotype he's all the stereotypes rolled into one. Right. He gets booted on his butt. And Rufus Scrimgeour comes in. Now, I see Rufus Scrimgeour as... Now, I see him as an older guy. I've seen some fan art where he's a younger guy. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, like, I think he's been there forever. He's the head of magical law enforcement. I think that, you know... Was he the head of magical law enforcement? Or he was the head or. He was the head or. I mean, I think he's one of those guys. He's been there forever. He's like John McCain. He's got more scars than Frankenstein. He's older than dirt. I mean, I, I see him as one of those guys, and he is going to do whatever is necessary to end the war, and he's going to do whatever is necessary to get the job done. Now, that means doing whatever is necessary to get Harry Potter into the fold. He's not going to, you know, vindictively attack people and brush things under the rug, but he'll grab Stan Shunpike because it makes people think that things are being done but but he's also going to do other stuff at the same time that's to basically pacify people while he gets the job done and that's the difference i see in the character at least in half-blood prince that he actually wants to acknowledge the problems and get them done but he doesn't care who he has to drive over to get there right uh rufus is more of a manipulator whereas fledge was more of a diplomat that's kind of how i i think of it he you know he's very willing to push and prod and pull and poke people into position on his mental chessboard, you know, so that he can win the war the way he thinks he needs to win the war. Whereas 
Sponge is kind of uh, had the possum approach, like we'll just play dead for a while and hopefully this guy will go away. So, um, oh no, I think yeah, I think Fudge is the guy who sucks the fingers in his ears and hummed real loud and hoped the whole thing went away. And I yeah. think that Scrimgeour at least acknowledges reality, but is going to do whatever he thinks he has to do to 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 get the job done. Now let's talk about Melinda's Rufus. I see Melinda's Rufus is almost like a, like a duplicate of Fudge, and yeah. I think that. If, if if one thing was jarring to me, and to be honest, I, I, I'm going to read the canon again this weekend, but I, I get the sense that, you know, and, and this is how, maybe this is just how she was more comfortable writing him. I get the sense that she liked writing Fudge, so she wrote into the storyline that Scrimgeour became like Fudge. So she could keep, you know, change Fudge to Scrimgeour, and it's the same new character. And I don't get the sense from him that he is, you know, the old... You know, guy who 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 gets what he's doing. He he understands reality, but he's still going to do it anyway because it's necessary. You know, to get the, to to for the end goal to defeat Voldemort. I just see him as a guy who will basically he wants Harry Potter to make press releases on his side, and he's like you know doing the thing where he licks his hand and like slicks his hair back so he looks good for the cameras, and that's my right side. I just get the sense that he's more of a politician than we had in Half Blood Prince, and maybe that's fine. Maybe that's the direction she wants to take the character. I just did notice that he was. Not the character I remembered from Half Blood Prince. I'm curious if that's just me going off the deep end. Um, you know, here's the thing with um, Scrimgeour is he has his moments where he's very strikingly fudge in the canon, mm-hmm. and then there's some times where there's some differences. I think that um, Scrimgeour is just kind of a he's one of those characters in canon that I don't really like because I can't. I can't get a real sense of who and what he is. Yeah. Fudge Fudge was very easy to read, and Scrimgeour is is harder to get. So, um, this is an interesting direction to take the character. I'm not. I'm apathetic about it. I. I it's one way or the other. I um, doesn't matter to me. But I, I do like how he was trying to manipulate the situation. You know, yeah. Yeah, Harry was walking in the front door of the ministry because he's having this big, important meeting with the Minister of Magic, and he's really just walking out of the Emperor Apparition license place. You know, yeah, I love the scene. So, he waves the thing in the air, and, and it's in the paper, and you can tell that Scrimgeour is furious, and he fires the secretary, and Harry feels guilty. Like you know, like fifty people die, Harry feels guilty. Receptionist gets fired, Harry feels guilty. What I would have expected from Scrimgeour, and what I expect from him in Deathly Hallows, is this. And maybe she just took him in the direction that which maybe you know me and my you know limited thought process, you know, just didn't foresee. I see Scrimgeour as someone who would declare martial law and go down to 6% in the approval polls because he thought that that would be something which would help defeat Voldemort. And he would, you know, take away people's civil liberties. And he would, you know, put orders on every street corner. And, Mm -hmm. you know, random searches, you know, on the night bus or whatever the hell they use to, you know um, they don't have subways um you know I, I i just see him as someone who would you know go so hardcore that the people would love it and he would get you know reelected or whatever you know and maintain office you know in that capacity but i saw him as someone that you know fudge didn't act i will and what i'm really seeing is you know oh, let's get my picture taken with harry potter and well what are you doing otherwise like if harry's not, like what are you doing in the months that harry's not there are you you know yeah i just got the sense that he would be not he would be, uh, you know, a guy that the audience doesn't like, but uh-huh. for different reasons. And I guess my only complaint about Scrimgeour is to this point, and I know we get more of him, he just seems like Fudge the Second. 
and we'll see where the character goes because there's still plenty of uh, room for that to change and one of the spoilers I read leads me to believe that it will change so I'm looking forward to uh, Worf's Crimjor's character and see uh, if I'm right or wrong on that one let's talk about Molly and Narcissa because I can't get enough of Molly and Narcissa with a great I don't remember Molly and Narcissa. Oh, yes, I do. Never mind. Okay. Hello. You're like, I haven't read this fic. What happens next? Shut up. Right. I have to. Okay. I just read it yesterday, though. Oh, let me back up. All right. Molly and Narcissa. How great is that scene? Oh, my goodness. They're both, you know, Molly's trying to be polite, and Narcissa's... Oh, she's not trying to be polite. She's trying to be firm. Like, for her, that's... What she does to Narcissa... It is probably the meanest thing you can do to Narcissa, and it's great. <laughs> I don't think she's trying to bend over backwards to be nice to her. She knows that Narcissa won't comply, and she knows this is the ultimate punishment for Narcissa. And she doesn't have to do anything other than what she does to everybody else, because what works for everybody else is poison to Narcissa. And it's... You know, there's there's some payoff that you love in, in fan fiction. When Bill is an ass and he gets his comeuppance, you as the readers cheer. You know, Charlie was really aggravating me and after the end when Ginny told him off, I cheered. There's some <laughs> scenes when, you know, you ha- you just get needled by the same point over and over. When Harry is doing his, uh, you know, I, 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 I have to save the world all by myself thing. When Ron is, you know, telling Ginny to beat it because she's a little kid, go play with your dolls. You know, w- when characters really cross the line, you, you just wait for someone to give it to them and that's what Molly does here and it's great. All she makes her do, bring your plates down, wash your plates, you can have food, which is Harry's. And (laughs) and you have Malfoys who are at the mercy of the order, at the mercy of Harry. They, They can't have their house elves. They have to clean their own trays. They can eat Harry's birthday cake. And it's just such a great scene. I love the fact that Molly... Molly Weasley, who Narcissa would you know, stomp on in any other situation because Molly is poor and Narcissa is rich and we are the upper class and they are the peasants. It's just such a great scene. I I, I, I enjoyed it probably the, more than any other scene I've read so far and I'm enjoying the fic so far. <laughs> but I just I just thought that was great. And I love the part where, you know, Narcissa walks over and she's about to have some of the cake and she realizes it's Harry's birthday and she won't touch it. Now I have a friend who has a thing with cartilage and if she ever eats a piece of chicken and there's any cartilage in it at all, she will do this thing with her mouth where it looks like she's like chewing the thing 800 times and she has this disgusted look on her face and she moves the food back and forth in her plate, but she'll never eat another bite of the food because it's like it, it completely grosses her out and, it, and I'm, I feel like saying it's a piece of cartilage just swallowed it but it's, it's one of those things where she gets this look on her face like you know like she's in a sinkhole you know filled with you know the most vile stuff in the world it's just it's awful awful that's what I picture Narcissa doing there with her nose up in the air like she you know like she's in a sewer like the fact that you know yeah. she has to eat Harry's cake I just think it's a great image and I really love the conversation with Harry where she tells Harry you know it's surprising people stay around you because everyone who surrounds himself you know with you turns up dead and on one level it really hits Harry because you can't be saying stuff like this to Harry this is like people dying blaming Harry as they go like Harry does not respond well to this but 
Harry's response, well, people who surround themselves with you end up in prison. <laughs> yeah. I love Harry in this fic. I love how he uh, is, you know, I've said it before, he's on this journey where he's maturing, but he's also getting more sarcastic and quick-witted, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what? I, and when I, I remember reading the fic for the first time when he tells off Scrimgeour, I think it's in chapter three or four, and I remember thinking, mm, this is kind of monologuing for Harry. I'm not sure if I believe this. But then I think back to Half-Blood Prince, and I love when Scrimgeour comes for Christmas, and he basically says, I'm Dumbledore's man through and through. I loved that bit. I was cheering. I was, yeah. You know, and then when, I, again, later at the funeral, when Scrimgeour approaches him again, and he reiterates his, you know, the position. And that's, you're just, because that's what you as the readers have been feeling. Yeah. For years and years and years, and he just comes right out and says it. So it's perfect. And I, he continues along that vein in this story. I think Melinda does an excellent job later on in the fic of picking up where Half Blood Prince Harry left off. So, yeah, I had some complaints about him being obsessed with Jenny in the first part of the fic, but he's settled down now. And I like this Harry, so it's nice. And then everybody gets drunk. Then everybody gets drunk, which is always the best part of the party. Now, is, now, I have a question. Have you ever read a fic where the characters didn't get drunk at one point? Yes. One or two, maybe? Yeah, I've written one. This seems to be like a staple. I don't know. It seems like the drunk scene, usually it's after a Quidditch game. It seems like this is like a prerequisite. If you want to write Harry Potter fan fiction, you have to have the scene where Ron's an ass. You have to have the scene where Harry you know, wants to do everything by himself. And you have to have a scene where Hermione gets drunk. Yeah. They're all sitting around getting wasted, which is, the, uh, of course, the pivotal coming-of-age moment for everybody on their 18th birthday. They go out and get wasted. I missed out on that. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, anyway, they're all sitting around, and um, Harry and Jenny are having a nice little moment, and then in walks Draco Malfoy. It's the... This is the chapter of the Malfoys are... Pricks. <laughs> Pretty so, much. Um, can I say that on a podcast? I guess I just did. You oh, just well. did. Uh, <laughs> so there's always it's going to be the gong of chi, um, you know. And he he comes in and he's very, you know, base and low level and and rude. And um, Harry just kind of stands up for Jenny. It's really uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's great. We've said this before. When you get the characters drunk, you get them to behave in ways they wouldn't behave otherwise. And I think it's probably, and you can speak to this, I think it's probably, it enables the author to be more free with the characters because you don't have to worry about, does that sound like Harry? Does that sound like Ron? Well, he's drunk, of course it sounds like him. People say stupid yeah. things when they're drunk all the time. I mean, you have Ron say Voldemort's name. And yeah. you have, you know, everyone stick up for everyone else. This is the scene where, you know, we're transitioning to the next part of the fic where, you know, the journey begins and this is everyone's last chance to essentially be a kid and to have a normal life. And you see the characters really loosen up. You see Harry defend, like you just said, you see Harry defend Ginny. You see Ron say Voldemort's name. And you see Ron recognize the fact that you have to enjoy life while you have it. <laughs> and you see yeah. Hermione curse Draco into a ferret and then repeat what I wish I could find on a bumper sticker. The bloody wanker does look like a ferret. <laughs> That's great. Ron confesses that he loves Hermione. And yeah. Hermione, just, her, Hermione doesn't really react to that, does she? Yeah, because, you know, he's drunk. You know, it's Hermione's very 
she's probably intellectually processed that as he doesn't mean it. He's drunk. You know, I don't think they're together at this point. Yeah, I mean, look at the line. It's the you know, it's the twins roared with laughter as Ron dropped to his knees in front of her. I love you, Hermione. He said he would never do that if he wasn't drunk. Come on. No, no, he wouldn't. So. And Hermione, of course, says, it would be nice if you would say that once in a while when I hadn't done your homework for you or performed a brilliant piece of transfiguration. That's not the first <laughs> time he said it. That can't be the first time he said it. She would have been like, you what? They've had yeah. this conversation before. Melinda, oh, missing exactly. moments. Come on. Exactly. All right. So. Brenda, do you have anything to say? Chapter 9, of course, starts out with the... Uh, the revelation that Harry's finally a man, and I still, I think it's really funny, you know, being from the United States, and where 18 is the age of majority, and they make such a big deal over being 17, it always seemed like kind of a crap age to me, because you didn't get to do anything cool, you know, with 16, at least in Arkansas, with 16 you got to drive, and 18 you got to vote and, you know, buy porn, but 17 always seemed kind of like a, eh, whatever, just one more stepping stone, but obviously in these stories it's a very big deal. I really think we need to, like, make Ginny a cape and a mask and with Hero Rescuer on it. You know, she can be some kind of wizarding superhero. Maybe they'll do a comic book about her, along with Martin Miggs, the bad muggle. And we get to see here where it is that Ron gets his head for strategy. Um, Mr. Weasley suggesting that they bait the paparazzi, say, you know, hey, we're here, we're not running away, we're still where we're supposed to be, we're being good little children when they're really off, you know, saving the world. And then, of course, this kind of dovetails on what we dealt with, with with after the end about finding a better way to guard the prisoners without having to resort to the Dementors, using some kind of charm or something like that to take care of the incarceration, and using the house elves to penetrate the defenses so that they can take care of the prisoners so that it's a humane place but that they're also not a threat to society. I really think it's funny that they have a potion that is guaranteed to avoid a hangover, and I, I really think that's funny because I have a friend who's going to pharmacy school, and she really wants for her research to be in the science of, of hangovers and how to avoid them, and so maybe she needs to uh, go into business with these folks to get some of that magic potion that they've got there. Chapter 10, Ginny's Bra. Now, I have... I, have, I am somewhat new to fan fiction, but Ginny's Bra seems to be making repeated appearances in this fic. I don't think that's the name of the chapter. I believe the name of the chapter is Delays, Disappointment, and Dating, not Jenny's Bra. Oh, I thought it was Jenny's Bra. I have Jenny's Bra written down here. Really? I have Delays, Disappointment, and Dating. I'm at MelindaLeo.com. Where are you at? I'm at MelindaLeo.com. Well, I'm actually... Well, maybe I was just thinking about Jenny's Bra because it keeps making appearances throughout the chapter. Now... Probably. I love how the chapter <laughs> begins because one thing that I think Melinda does very well, especially in Power of Emotion, is she really... She, I think she writes Harry's character sometimes through the eyes of her youngest son in the way he sees the world. And it just... You know, Harry awoke with a start, momentarily panicked because he doesn't recognize his surroundings. Has he been kidnapped by Death Eaters? No. Is he in an alternate dimension where Voldemort never fell? You know... Slipping his glasses on his nose, he stared wildly at the bright yellow walls and abundance of flowers and cosmetics and, well, girly stuff. Yes. <laughs> he's 17 and he's surrounded by this these contraptions he doesn't understand. It's like being in Dumbledore's office. I just love the mindset of Harry. It's like, ew, girly stuff. Yeah, this is so not my brother. <laughs> but then again, my brother grew up with two sisters, so I, I can't. You know, my brother's closer probably to Ron, and, like, he would totally not be freaked out by this at all. <laughs> yeah. But I can see Harry, who, 
his only uh, exposure to you know femininity was Aunt Petunia, and uh, <laughs> beacon so, of femininity that she is. Oh yes, woman. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just did that. I'm imagining but, I can yeah. take it out, or maybe I won't. But yeah, I mean. And I, I, you have to love, you know, the extent they take the character of Ron. Sometimes I'm talking about fan fiction authors in general, but you know, of course, Harry realizes he's holding Ginny's bra. So of course, Harry is mortified. So of course, Ron wants to know what it is, won't let up on it, and is pissed at Harry when he figures it out. Like, what does he think happened? Yeah, exactly. Like, like okay, like, you're Ron. Your 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 best friend is holding, you know, your sister's bra. You're, he slept in your sister's bed because you know. Obviously, Ron knows that. What did he think happened? Does he think Harry is stealing her underwear? Like, what Probably. do you think? Probably. Like, maybe he has some weird fetish or something. I don't know. Ooh, <laughs> there's the road not traveled. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Like, 101 smut fix. I haven't done that already. Right. But, um, yeah. Chan's read them all and is prepared to review them for next week's episode of the Perfect Weekly. We should do a smutty discussion episode one time. Okay. Um, if you want to hear it, email LadyChi at PowerfectWeekly.com. If we get five people, we'll, write, we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> right. That would be kind of interesting, though. There you go. So, yeah. So Ginny anyway. comes in, of course, you know, is bemused by the fact that she you know has more bras. They can each have one. And at this point, I just kind of lose it. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. they leave in the middle of the night. Now, it's very understated. A lot of the journey is understated, you know, in the next two chapters and in, you know, chapters beyond. But, right. you know, I, I do like the visual that they sneak downstairs before Molly gets up and they open the door and they probably pause for a moment. And then they, you know, they walk outside and they close the door behind them and they leave number 12 Grimmel Place behind. It's not like the end of the chapter. It's not like with the da-da-da music. It's just... You know, mid-chapter, they're gone. Right. And I think that the journey itself, it, the way it's written, it, 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 it's it's like the parts of the movies where Harry lets Hedwig go and he flies over the hill and all of a sudden it's springtime. Yeah. It's like you zip through it and all of a sudden, you know, they've been in Albania for two weeks. I mean, the, the journey itself progresses in a very good clip. Yes. And I don't get the sense that Melinda wrote it to tell, you know, like the Lord of the Rings narrative. You know, here's the four chapters on what the blade of grass looks like. I mean, this is like, okay, yeah. they're in Albania, they're at, you know, Zacharias, Memphis, blah, 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 blah. It just seems yeah. like it's 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 written, you know, almost like, you know, keep up with her or else you're going to get lost. And I necessarily don't have a problem with that either because, you know, there look at Order of the Phoenix and how that was written, you know, the book is 900 pages long because you have to get Harry to Grimmel Place. You have to get him to the ministry. You have to get... Melinda zips through it and uh, I just want to point out the fact that she does that. I really don't have an opinion on it. I think it's fine either way, but I just would like to point out that it's different from what Joe does, which is fine. I mean, it's just... It's it's a different road. It's different. Right. It's a different way of doing it. Then again, Joe writes for a living and has all kinds of time, and Melinda has two hours to write. Melinda's well, like, I need so, to get them there by the end of the chapter, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so then I, they were in Albania. Well, that and, you know, you're when you're writing for an internet medium, you really can't... I'm, Jen's going to fight me on this, but if you really want to be an effective writer, unless you're, you know, goddesses like Arabella and Zenia, then you really have to tell stories concisely because people are 
you have only got their attention for so long, you know. People are instant messaging while they're reading your chapters. They're, you know, they're talking with their friends on. I mean, you just don't have the time to tell a story the way that you would tell a story if you are going to write a book and somebody's going to sit down and they're going to read your book. You know, oh, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think that it could go either way. I don't think it was a real focus of Melinda's story. I don't think she cared, you know, where's the apparition point that they use to get to, you know, Albania, you know. What, oh, I know she doesn't. Yeah. Melinda and I have had this conversation before. She doesn't, we don't think that way, either one of us, as far as we don't necessarily care, you know where the characters are going to the bathroom and where the apparition point is and, you know, how does flu powder work? Like, it doesn't matter to us. Like, we're just going to give you some... If you ask us, we'll give you a real quick explanation, but we haven't really thought... put oodles and oodles of time into thinking about stuff like that, so... Yeah, I mean, it it would work if she did. If she she wanted to write that, it would work. I don't think, you know, you have to have the concern that, you know, people are going to be instant messaging and not reading it. I think that if you write, you know, like immense description of everything and it's not interesting you're going to have a problem but if you can you know make it a very intriguing description if you can really suck the audience in i think it can work splendidly i mean let me let me tell you this i'm a big star trek fan half of the star trek fans are obsessed with what deck the warp core is on and what's in the warp core and you know how often do they fuel up the warp core and where do they get the stuff to put into the warp core i mean people are fascinated by this and i don't care i care there's an engine that works and if the engine breaks that's a plot point for next week's episode because they have to get the thing to fix the engine i mean that's I don't, I don't care about that, but some people really do, and it's really funny because one of the guys who worked on Star Trek went to Battlestar Galactica. Haha, <laughs> see that? I mentioned Battlestar Galactica. Somewhere, Phil is taking a shot. Phil is taking a shot, right? Phil is drunk right now because I mentioned Battlestar Galactica so often. And there's an episode where you know the, the the Galactica, the big ship, you know, has to fall through the atmosphere of a planet. And I listened to the podcast from the head writer. He's like, yeah. That would probably, you know, burn the hull of the ship. But you know what? I figure if the ship can get nuked, it can take it. Yeah. It's maybe yeah. something really hard. I don't know what that is. But I'm assuming it's pretty hard stuff. So I'm fine <laughs> with it. And uh, that's, if that was a Star Trek fan, I think they'd be like, well, you know, the, the, the metal in this episode doesn't match. I, I just think there's two different types of readers. There's the readers who want to know everything about everything, and they want to know where the characters got off you know, the train and where their connecting train was, and they want to know you know, about what happened to them on the on the, on the connecting flight. I mean, there, there's people who want to know everything, and there's the people who want the da-da-dot now in Albania. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think... You know, I, I think if you underestimate the importance of telling a, uh, a interesting story... I mean, writing fan fiction is a very different style than writing novels. Right. I, I'm just... I'm making, I'm making that argument that you cannot write a novel the way that you would write a fan fiction, and you can't write a fan fiction the way that you would write a novel, and I know because I do both. And it's two different mental processes. You have to understand your medium. It's just like an art form, you know, you can't draw and then assume you know how to paint. It's two totally different mental processes, at least for me, you know, some people have been been able to say, you know, well, I'm just writing a novel and I'm publishing it online and I really don't think that's the medium, you know, I think that the internet is conducive to certain types of stories that, you know, Jen and I talk about this all the time, they're conducive to dialogue-driven, character-driven stories. You're not going to find 
oodles and oodles and oodles massive paragraphs of really lush description because it's messy on the screen it's too the text is too close together people can't concentrate not in this format so i i think you know my point is still valid that you have to tell a certain style of story in a fan fiction medium Good debate. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't really necessarily disagree. I think I think it depends on. I think you like what we do with this podcast. We t- we discuss fan fiction for four hours a week and three hours a week. And I think some people are used to having forty five minute podcasts, and they see that we're three hours, and they flip the dial and they go to someone else. You know, if there were such a dial, or you know, they yeah delete this from the playlist. Like, yeah. I'm trying to think of what the correct metaphor is. I mean, there's niche markets out there for everything, and I think that there's room enough for every different type of writing and if people don't want to read it that's fine if they do want to read it that's fine too i i think we're getting wildly off track on this i i just want to point out the fact that (laughs) yeah melinda doesn't like description a lot of the time she likes plot and character and i think i'm fine with that me too i'm i like the story so far she's doing a wonderful job with her style and it's very distinctive and yeah i really don't have much to say about words or anything else that would relate to style with her so she must be doing a good job yeah let's talk about where the journey goes from here because she takes us over the course of this chapter to three different parts of the earth you know hence you know the fact that there isn't a lot of description between and you know she takes us to the orphanage where tom brindle uh grew up which we saw in half-blood prince she takes us to zachariah smith's museum which we also saw in half-blood prince and mm-hmm. she takes us to albania that wonderful village with trees in it apparently if we're gonna go by um hermione's description i just love the fact that hermione's like there's lots of trees in albania but i think if we go those ones you know if we if we start our search over here you know i'm just picturing ron hermione Ginny and Harry with a flashlight going through Albania looking for Voldemort's, you know, old hut. Like I just, I, I find it fascinating. <laughs> that, yeah, that's but I'm it sure works. There was a little bit more process to that than. Oh, uh, we'll just add, pick that group of trees at random, and. But I think it works. Yeah. I wonder if Melinda sat at her computer like, how the heck do I do this? But, um, yeah, I, I here's the, the the thread that weaves these three places together. It's Harry's gut instinct. Yes. And this is where he comes into conflict with Hermione. I think it's a great use of both characters. Harry just believes this. And we've had people on the forum having this discussion, you know, is Harry a horcrux or isn't he? Well, we think he is because he always seems to just have this gut instinct, what's right and what's wrong. And the way he responds to that gut instinct is often incorrect. I mean, he, he based on what he decided to do in Order of the Phoenix, Sirius ended up dying. I'm not saying it's Sirius' fault as a character, but he if he made different decisions, maybe that wouldn't have been the result. But Harry just doesn't think that the Horcrux is at the orphanage. He really thinks it's at the Smith Museum. He just doesn't get that feeling in Albania. And Hermione's furious. She's stomping her foot. You know, what do you mean it's not here? How do you know? How do you know? Sometimes you just have to have faith. You just have to believe in it. And there's something that Harry just feels that tells him it's not there or it's there. And he always seems to be right. And is it the little piece of Voldemort that's inside of him? Is it the connection that Voldemort forged with him when he tried to kill him as a young baby? We really don't know at this point. I suspect it's going to be something to do with the Horcrux. But you know, as a reader, I just, I, I I just don't know yet. But I just think that's a great way to write the journey. That you know, Harry and Ron, and Hermione and Ginny are going around the world, but Harry's kind of like the compass, 
And he's like, not feeling it here. Mm, over there, I think. And I, I just yeah. think that's a really cool way of doing it. I, I think it's interesting. I don't know how close to canon it would be. I, um, It's a good way to tell a story. It also gives you a chance to, of course, explore a little bit of the character differences between Harry and Hermione and Ron and Jenny um, based on how they all handle this new um, experience. Um you know, it's a good thing to do creatively, and there, there's a lot of really good um, writing moments in here, some good dialogue, but I have to say there's nothing that, like, struck me as amazing over this, as far as, like, dialogue goes. It just kind of, I'm kind of meh. Like, I'm reading through it, and it's okay. You know, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not overwhelmed by anything. There's not any, like, amazing dialogue or... Um, lines, which is okay because you know we had some really good moments in the last chapter, and we just need a mental, like a, like yeah. a mental clutch, so we can shift gears to where we're supposed to be going. I so. think this chapter is essentially all plot, and it's all mm-hmm. exposition. You know, once we get away from you know Jenny and her bra, I mean, it's they go to the orphanage, and Harry, you know pretends he's a computer technician and you know they, they, they there's that one scene where you know Harry and Ginny kiss and I think she sucks Harry's lips off you know which is a great moment for the two characters and there's a little moment where they see the little boy out of bounds that Hermione is inexplicably very concerned for which you know is probably you know very in character for Hermione anyway yeah you know through going to Borgen and Burks Ron and Harry are able to find out that they need to go to the Smith Museum and by going to the Smith Museum Harry's able to feel like he found Horcrux, but we're going to come back to the Horcrux later because we're off to Albania, and you know Hermione, you know apparently knows what trees to look through, so they go to Albania. And I love there's even a line, you know, after a fortnight in Albania, they just so now they've been there for two weeks, and you know it's moving, 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 and I think that's fine. I mean, I don't know if that's how it's going to be in canon, nor do I care at this point because that's not what we're talking about. But I think that she just she covers a tremendous amount of ground in this one, you know, relatively short. you know, chapter comparatively speaking for how far the characters come. Right. You know, and then we go to the date, which I think is very necessary for the characters. As much as they need to focus on the difference between Harry and Hermione, the difference between faith and science, they need to focus on the fact that you need to live. And I like the fact that, you know, halfway through this journey to find, you know, pieces of a dark wizard soul, they take the night off to have a date and celebrate Jenny's birthday. And Harry gives her jewelry. And, you know, the, you know if, the, if they had to remember months down the road, you know, what they ate, you know, they couldn't remember it because they were locked in each other's eyes. I mean, it's pure fluff, and that's fine. And that's the story that um, Melinda wants to write. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think it's fine. I, I like the date. I think it's, like, as you said, it's necessary. They need a mental break. They need to get recentered. Um, we don't really get the sense, like, from the text necessarily. Like, we don't get the feeling of time because like you said it's a very quick transition like after a fortnight in Albania or after such and such time you know then you know that's how we know how much time has passed so as a reader we don't necessarily feel the time but the characters certainly are they're starting to snip at each other and they need this recentering and the audience um, we never really object to any fluffy moments between Harry and Jenny I haven't really heard any complaints so far so <laughs> i was very amused by the end of the chapter where you know harry and Ginny, you know are are obviously making out with each other things get a little serious and they kind of separate 
themselves, you know, with all of their willpower, and they, you know, they hear that Ron and Hermione have come home, and they kind of go into their separate beds and fall asleep, and I just love the moment where Ron storms in. Like, if he catches them together, he's going to kill Harry? Yes. Like, he and Hermione were just doing the same thing, most likely, but now he's going to kill Harry. And it just shows every once in a while you think that Ron gets it. Not so much, no. 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 He's got his limits, just like everybody else. The nice thing about that is, you know, nobody ever really permanently changes. So, you know, if something is in your character, then it's in your character. And I think that, you know, his concern for Jenny is is very much in his character. And and so it's nice to see it come back when it does. So They're going to be married with, with like, you know, expecting their first kid. And Ron's going to be looking at, you know, Jenny's pregnant belly and realize that Harry did that and just going to beat up her husband. I just, you you know, it's going to happen. Yes. We get to see how how lovely it is when Harry reacts to stepping on Jenny's bra, which I can just imagine uh, several of the gentlemen that I know at that age doing something very, very similar. I do like that they get into the idea of um, the helplessness that Tom Riddle felt when he was at the orphanage and why they're saying that there wasn't a Horcrux still hidden here, because it's not some place where he would feel powerful at all, because the only time, you know, his little presence that he took from other children, he was made to give those back and wasn't allowed to steal anymore, and so he was he would have felt very helpless and not in control, and those are two things that I think Lord Voldemort really thrived on, was feeling in control and, and being in control of the situation. So I, I think it does make a lot of sense that he wouldn't bring the Horcrux back to some place where he didn't feel so powerful. Chapter 11, Lions and Tigers and Dragons. Oh, my. All right. All right. I'm taking five points from Hufflepuff for that stupid joke. All right. My notes right here. You're going to enjoy this. For Chapter 11, Hermione's like me in the morning. Yes. Yes. Actually, have you... You've had a conversation with me in the morning. I we have. both We had a conversation together in the morning. when we both were like... We started... Do you remember this? We started like half an hour after we said we were going to. Because the first like half an hour, we couldn't talk. Yeah. Like, you needed coffee and I needed coffee. And we both needed to go get the human. Because we both were like, oh, we'll just wake up. We'll do this in our pajamas. It'll be great. No. Not so much. Not well, so much. Um, Hermione in the morning. and I, I love a little bit of character development that Melinda, after seven years of knowing Hermione, you know, adds in at this point. The fact that Hermione always seems fine in the morning, but she's always in a bad mood if someone tries to talk to her in the morning. If, if Lavender or you know, Pravati try and speak to her in the morning, she's going to be in a bad mood and she's not going to want to hear it. I just, I, just, I, just, I just appreciate the fact that you know, we never get the sense that you know, Hermione has a caffeine at, is a caffeine addict, but apparently she is. So I, I just thought that was kind of cool to develop the fact that we've never seen Hermione like this before because we've obviously missed it because, you know, those are the days that, you know, she has her coffee in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And and, and Ginny and Harry just seem to be kind of like the lovey-dovey couple in this scene. You know, Ginny's making breakfast. Can I That's... make you some bacon? And, you know... Yeah. Yeah, well, this, this kind of reminds me of, like, that kind of, like, semi-nauseous feeling I get when I see my brother and my best friend together. Like, it's cute, but... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and you can tell Hermione's probably thinking, get a room, because she's... <laughs> yeah, she's so... She's gone. Now, 
at this point, like we said, the last chapter is kind of like the fluff. It, you know, it, it, it's just massive plot movements followed by fluff pieces. It's not really any characters. Char- there's no real character angst in the past chapter. You know, it, it, no. it, it's we we get it in double dose in this chapter. Now we have you know we've been gone from Grimmel Place for so long that yeah. you know we're, we're getting we're, you know we're we're, we're going to be returning to London and. We have to deal with the consequences of what we've done. We have to deal with the consequences that we've left the order behind. And I love Ron's line. Mom won't have any problem with it. She'll welcome us home with open arms. Right after she owls Percy to call him a git and gives the burrow to the twins to wager in a Quidditch match. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. And it's so Ron. Yeah, I mean, and that's true. I mean, and you know what's coming. You know they're going to be furious. You know you're going. You know the older siblings who don't know anything are going to be calling them children and demanding that they go play with their dolls and go do their homework, which they don't have. And you you know what's coming, and it's good that the characters recognize that too, because I think in other fics, you know, the characters would go back. What do you mean you're upset? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like completely not seeing it coming. So of course, you know, we return to London. Yes. And you know, uh, it's you know it's past September first. It's past you know the, when Hogwarts otherwise would have opened. And you know, I, I, nice little detail there. A lot of the Hogwarts students have gone to other schools. Zachariah Smith, who is a fabulous human being, I love him dearly. <laughs> very pleasant person. Very pleasant person uh, has gone to Bobatons. And there's even a moment when. Harry realizes that Hermione would have gone to Bobatons if not for this, and he's keeping Hermione from school. And he even feels badly for that. You know, he's keeping her from her parents. He's keeping her from school. You don't... I never really have read before, you know, Harry feels guilty, you know, because he used, you know, like the last of the toothpaste, but I've never really read him before feeling guilty for, you know, making Hermione follow him. I you always just assume that Harry knows that his friends will be there forever. And he's afraid of getting them killed, but I never really have read before Harry feeling bad for, you know, apparently being such a good friend that they would follow him. I, that, that was new to me. Yeah. I, I, I like this, this, uh, you know, where they, um, they're, of course they're in Diagon Alley and, and he gets accosted by reporters and you know because Melinda's not famous like JKR and JKR is very concerned with how Harry handles fame and we don't really get a sense of that from Melinda so this insight into Melinda's take on fame is kind of interesting where he gets asked what he kind of views as a stupid question <laughs> like what do you what do you think about the inferior attacks what are you planning to do about them uh well <laughs> defend yourself <laughs> what do you think of the inferior Duh. attacks i support them like <laughs> yeah it, yeah exactly. it's, it's like i'm a poli- i'm a big political geek and i i love the debates when the democratic candidate gets up and says i support feeding young children as though the republicans support starving them it's like yeah. oh, come on you know what are your positions on the inferior attacks they should stop yeah, I think exactly. they're. I think they're bad. Yes. I am personally against zombies attacking people. Like, what do you <laughs> want from the kid? Like, come on. Stupid He's question. Like, yeah, you know, and you can just see the people around him, like, uh, duh. You know, and and of course they split up because they, you know, yeah. they are. It's getting too tense, and and you know, Harry, of course, is. You guys go away from me, and I'll go the other direction, and you know, we'll meet back where we first operated and uh, Jenny's like, uh, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
yeah, it's nice to see that Harry and Ginny interaction. Then, of course, that all leads to them seeing Molly and Bill. Yeah. And Molly looks almost frail, and she's white as a ghost. And, you know, Kingsley's there, and they're on some level searching for, you know, on, on some level the order is mobilized to find, you know, the quartet. And, you know, Bill whispers something to Molly, and Molly starts to cry. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very painful moment because the, these guys are doing what Dumbledore asked. And, you know, especially with Ginny, you know, Harry, Ron, and Hermione have always done these things together, but the, I don't think they ever expected, you know, Arthur ever, never expected Ginny to be going along with this. And even though the one thing that I think makes it difficult for the reader is that it's only been like a chapter. Yes. So it's like they just left. So, you know, if this were something where they left in Chapter 6 and they were coming back in Chapter 26, I think I, as the reader, would be more emotionally involved. But because Chapter 10 was so dense and it was so much stuff in such a brief period of time, I don't feel emotionally invested. But the fact that I'm emotionally invested anyway in Molly to see the impact on... Like, I'll put it this way. You're a mother and you lose your kid in, you know... Best Buy for 20 minutes. You're probably, you know, frail, white, you know, like crying. I mean, so it doesn't have to be a great deal of time, but the fact that I think I I get the fact that she's concerned and I get the fact that everyone is mobilized, but for me, it feels like they've been gone six hours. Yeah. It's been a blink of an eye for the audience and it's really been much longer for the, the quartet, but we, we don't get a sense of that from the writing. That's the only, well, not even just, just the pacing. And I think that's the only thing that we lose out on the emotional impact for the fact that these guys have been gone for weeks. I just don't, I just don't find myself pulled into that as, as the reader, but that's just because Melinda has so much she needs to cover. Which brings us to the Smith Museum, and I really like what Melinda does with the concept of the Horcruxes from Voldemort's perspective. Because if you yes. stop to think about it, you know, okay, someone on on Pothercast once asked, okay, if you're Voldemort, why don't you make you know like five Coke cans Horcruxes and spread them all over the world? No one will ever find them. It's personal for Voldemort, and I, as a reader, sense that will be his undoing because he. He he so you know handicaps himself by you know only going for prized targets that it makes it easy for people to locate them. So I think that we need to really understand why he's picking these particular objects. He's picking his enemy's strengths and he's turning those into his horcruxes and in a way to basically show power over them and to humiliate them in some way. So you know the 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 the, the the Hufflepuff trophy, you know, the, the you know, the Hufflepuff cup hidden in a place right in plain sight, you know, in the wardrobe, which signifies, you know, you know, the, you know, the power of, you know, Hufflepuff and, you know, the, you know, their, their, their great strength. Am I saying this right? Am I making any sense with this? Yeah, you're, you're, go- you're doing well. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in this place of, you know, reverence, you know, for all things Hufflepuff, I don't know, I'm, I'm a Hufflepuff myself. I'm not sure really what I'm talking about here. But, you know, in this, you know, place that means a lot to Hufflepuffs, he's putting his Horcrux. And he's putting it in a place where they won't have access to it. And right. I, I just think that in and of itself is natural. That makes sense to me. That he It would be like making you know, uh, Dumbledore's office, you know, a Horcrux, or making Dumbledore's, you know, desk a Horcrux, or making 
Fox or Horcrux. It's something which right. you know humiliates. I think you know the the enemy which he's trying to conquer. And again, I like the fact that Ginny is able to access the Horcrux because she's underage, and Voldemort never assumed that anyone underage would be able to defeat him. Defy him, him. Yeah. yeah, and th- and that makes sense because that is his greatest weakness and it makes sense that he doesn't see it as a weakness and I like that I think that makes perfect sense what do you think about this because I want to get to also um, their injuries run my well I, I think that you know um, the concept of the Horcrux is you're splintering your soul right so one would assume that's a little bit like the the uh, Fidelius charm mm-hmm you know where there have to, there has to be some emotional investment. Um, probably the same with the Horcruxes. You know, you you have to have the person that you're murdering has to mean something, and the person the thing that you're sticking a segment of your soul, soul into. Yeah. Thank you. Lost the word. No uh, that has to mean something too. And I and I think you know if you say well, he probably could have just made a coke can of Horcrux. I think you're missing the point. Everything in the Harry Potter universe is, has some deeper symbolism, you know. Right, right. So I think that that that's probably what we're talking about here. It, you know, it has to mean something to him, and it obviously the founders meant something to him because. Um, Hogwarts was the only place Dumbledore ever felt comfortable calling home. Same with Harry. Um, you, you know, that's that's the type of thing they think we should be thinking about. It, we should be in that frame of mind versus the, you know, other frame of mind. Yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that Voldemort's main desire was that he just wanted to live forever and nothing else. He didn't care about how he got there. I think he could easily do it. I think his undoing will be the fact that he stands for something. I don't like what he stands for, but he stands for something. And because he limits himself in his behavior to... Because he limits his behavior to, you know, show off, you know, how powerful he is and to gloat about it and to rub his enemies, you know, faces in it. Because he has to go that route, that's what will be his undoing. Right. Now... Ron and Hermione are injured very early on here. Um, Hermione reaches for the wardrobe and, you know, it, flames shoot out and, and she catches on fire and Ron, you know, is injured trying to help her. And I love Harry's response when he, like, jumps on them and rolls them around on the ground because it, it just reminds me of, like, the scene from, you know, Philosopher's Stone where... Where Hermione's like, we don't have a light. And Ron's like, are you a witch or not? Not, exactly. It's like, take your wand out and shoot them with with bursts of water and his first reaction is roll on the ground roll on the ground <laughs> I just thought that yeah. was you know great and you know they're they're badly injured and Harry yes. doesn't know enough to help them and he doesn't know enough healing spells to help them and Ginny doesn't know enough healing spells to help them but they but Ginny and Harry can go on right so they have to go back and get help right they have to go back to they're going to go back to Grimmauld Place after a certain amount of time, but they're going to give Harry and Ginny a chance to get the Horcrux. And what was poignant about this scene, two levels. Number one, Ron's reaction. Number two, what I think it means for Deathly Hallows. Ron's reaction. I'm going to stay behind with Hermione. She needs me. I can't go on. I'm going to stay here. And it's that right. moment where Ron, who's like, beat it, Ginny, get out of here. You know, this is for us grown-ups to decide. Ron is forced to recognize the fact that his sister can continue. His sister is capable and you know I, the, the moment i thought was very powerful when he says jenny you know you know listen to harry don't 
you know, do anything that, you know, you shouldn't be doing, you know, don't take any unnecessary risks, you know, I'll be here when you get back. And it's just that powerful moment where he knows he might never see his sister again, but he lets her go and he doesn't resist it. And I think that, you know, Philosopher's Stone and Deathly Hallows will kind of be like bookends to each other. And there's that moment at the end of Deathly Hallows where Hermione tells Harry, go on without me, I'll stay with Ron. And I think that's a perfect echo, you know, Ron saying, go on without me, Harry, I'll stay with Hermione. And I think that that is something that will actually happen in Deathly Hallows. I think the the trio will get to a certain point and Harry will have to go on ahead because only he can do this. And I think that moment where, you know, even though Harry's taking Ginny with him this time, I think that's going to be something that we're going to see again in Deathly Hallows. That really just jumped out at me, that one moment there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even though that the this is the story of the trio, it's really more about Harry Potter, and um, it's his it's his battle to fight with Voldemort, and ultimately he's responsible for it. I think that's an excellent point. Now we get into the wardrobe, and it's apparently the wardrobe they borrowed from uh, C.S. Lewis's *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, because nice. it goes on and on. You like that much farther than it really should be going. Yes, and yes. It apparently gets us now. I have a question. I did not read this until after the cover art for Deathly Hallows came out. When they walked into a coliseum, I was like, <laughs> okay, this is kind of freaking me out a little bit. Maybe, maybe this is why everyone thought this was Deathly Hallows when someone uh, stole it from Melinda. But Probably. Yeah, now, there's a dragon inside, so apparently... Now, here's my question. There's a dragon inside, and the dragon is defending the... Cup. Cup. Voldemort obviously left the dragon behind to guard the cup from anyone who would try and steal his Horcrux. Okay, with you so far. You can't get out unless you have the Horcrux, which, okay, I'm with you so far, and I think that leads to the very poignant moment where Harry, badly injured, says, I need to live long enough to get Ginny out of here. Imagine how frightening that moment is, just how scary that concept is, that, you know, not only are you going to die, but you're condemning the one you love to, you know, being trapped in this place forever. Yes, that's awful. You know, like, that's just a horrible situation to be in, and uh, it seems to be the kind of situation that Harry would get himself into, so I buy it. Yeah. I, 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 I'm kind of, uh, I wish maybe there was something different, because, you know, oh, come on, Harry, you've done this before in Goblet of Fire. I'm like, eh, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, whatever. I've seen him do this already. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know we can do it. Whatever. I was hoping for a little bit more challenge, perhaps, in finding the Horcruxes. You know, when he took Dumbledore, even the fake Horcrux was an awful, awful experience. This just seemed too easy. Yeah, well, here's the thing, too. It's like, on some level, I think there's going to have to be a little bit of of cheating from a storytelling from a storytelling standpoint because if you look at it okay you have in uh i'm sorry you have in half-blood prince dumbledore destroy two horcruxes i'm sorry you have in half-blood prince one horcrux destroy dump you know you have in half-blood prince one horcrux kill dumbledore's arm and you have dumbledore essentially die in the process of stealing another one which is fake or, you know, Dumbledore die in the process of destroying another one, and it's not even a real Horcrux. You have Harry destroy one in Chamber of Secrets, but he's nearly killed as well. So I think at some right. level, you know, if if, if, the, if the wise old man with the beard, you know, dies, and it's not even a real one, and, you know, the, the weak kid you know, in, in the next book has to destroy, you know, five of them, you know, at some point, you know, it's going it's to have to get easier, or this kid's going to have something that the old man didn't have. My problem with it was you have... 
a dragon guarding a cup that can be destroyed by the dragon's own fire. Right. That was a little that's, weird. That That's kind of like having a pyromaniac guarding an oxygen tank. Right. It's a little bit like, what if he gets, you know, gas and hiccups? Yeah. You know? Like, then you're toast. I thought that was the thing I found a little convenient. The fact that the dragon itself could just... Yeah, exactly. The dragon's sitting on the cup one day and decides to just, you know, he had too much chili the night before, and all of a sudden, somewhere in the world, a horcrux has died. Right. Exactly. So that was my only concern with it. Um, although I just do want to underscore the poignancy of it that you have... It, it's kind of like the moment from After the End when Hermione fears that... I'm sorry. It's all—it's like that moment in After the End where Ron fears that Hermione's parents thought it was Hermione torturing them. And it's like the story... It's the storytelling point that you acknowledge it, but you don't have to go there because that's just too much. You know, the fact that, you know, Ginny could be trapped in this place forever and Harry would have to die knowing that Ginny was trapped there. You know, thank God it didn't happen that way, but that was just too much. I'm like, you don't go that far. Oh my God. But, you you know, Horcrux was destroyed and Harry literally, you know, it took everything he had. And I... I do, and like I found, you know, the the moment when the Horcrux was destroyed a little far fetched. But what else does this scene show? It shows that Ginny will do anything to get to Harry, and Ginny can, you know, take Harry on, you know, on her, you know, like literal horseback. You know, it's literally like you know the girl gallops in, puts Harry, you know, on on her horse, you know, and and she carries him away into the sunset. It's like Harry's the damsel in distress. I like yeah. I like the you know the 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 flip back and forth on that one. I like the fact that Harry is a much stronger wizard than he was the last time he faced the situation. He can create his own broom that, you know, of course, you know, vanishes at the moment he really needs it. I I like, you know, the symmetry between this scene and Goblet of Fire. I think the actual destruction of the Horcrux is a little too easy, but I like what it shows us about the character of, you know, Ginny and how, you know, everything kind of meshes together. And I just really love the interaction between... You know, Ron and Harry, and I'm gonna shut up now because I've been talking for like 20 minutes. You have anything? Um, yeah, you, you, just what I said before. With I, I'm kind of disappointed by her choice of the dragon. I thought maybe that was a little too contrived, a little too easy. I was looking for something a little bit more creative. I thought it was a little too easy uh, to get in and get out. You know, easy, and you know, Ron and Hermione are back wherever they are, bleeding to death. But you know. Apparently it wasn't that easy now that I think too. yeah but now that I think of it you know Hermione's head burns off you know Ron can't barely move and Harry you know almost gets killed by a dragon so yeah yeah I mean you know there are parts of it that I like and there are parts that are um but you know that's only if I'm overanalyzing it and when I'm not overanalyzing it I really I really enjoy um, Melinda's story so far she and... predicted the Coliseum 10 points to Hufflepuff Hey, hey, now. I took five points away from myself earlier, so she's really only up five. Okay. All right. Whatever. (laughs) You're just... Ravenclaw didn't get any points today. Dang it. Actually, do we have any um, thoughts from Mac on this one? Maybe we can get up some points here. Um, let's see. I didn't look it up. The Potterfic Weekly uh, Prefect Council voted that we would give points out every week for someone who had, you know, a really great thought, you know, either posted on the board or as a voicemail or, or what have you. So let's hear from uh, Mac a little bit. Oh, he doesn't like the fact that they're joking at um, when he's trying to grab the Horcrux, you know, and Jenny's being kind of 
sarcastic and he, he goes, seriously? Are they really joking at this point? Harry is going to make a grab for Horcrux by taking on a dragon and they're joking? This is no time for jokes and the similarities between this and the first task. I wonder if these are deliberate or not, but if they are, did we just run out of ideas? Is that the best Voldemort can do? Because compared to the poison, blood-demanding, infrared-ridden cave, this seems not so tough. And what happened with the cup? Harry just tossed it in the fire and destroyed a part of Voldemort's soul. Just a little fire and boom, soul gone. If these things are going to be that easy, Dumbledore would have never lost his hand. It's just a little too convenient. Okay, I do agree with the second part. Although the first part, I think it's very obvious. It's symmetry, the Goblet of the Fire. I I don't think Melinda forgot the fact that there was a dragon guarding a thing. Renna, do you have anything to say? I really like the way that they went ahead and put a grave marker up for Bertha Chorkins. Just... Um, because it's, you know, the nice thing to do, which, again, it just kind of juxtaposes the good versus the, you know, the light versus the dark in this story. You know, the dark didn't care one way or the other about her, and they, you know, put a locator on it. They wanted her to be known. They wanted people to know where she was, because she was really the first casualty of the Second War, so they wanted that to be remembered, and I think that's a good thing. I do also think, you know, this is another one of those stories where they make Hermione into some kind of crazy caffeine addict, which I know I guess it's like, oh, make muggle girl, muggle-born girl, the one that's, you know, can't live without her coffee, but I just think that's ironic how she's always, it seems like in a lot of the stories I read, she's the one that has to have her coffee in the morning. And then, you know, you realize that obviously being around Ron has really rubbed off on Harry in this scene because he's the one that says no, you know, I want to be seen in London. I want to keep the other schools safe because strategically, you know, the Death Eaters might assume that I went to another school and if I'm seen in London on September 1st, then it means that I didn't. So maybe he'll leave the other schools alone because he's still, you know, it's strategy, but it's also he's still trying to protect the innocents. And they get to see you know, Harry is being different again. He can feel the magic. And then I love the way he interacts with Hermione in this. You know, he's, oh, this is the same room. And he thinks that she can feel it. But she's like, no, this is what we saw, remember? You know, it's been painted and the fireplace is different. But, you know, it's still the same room. And, I mean, I love that. She's the walking encyclopedia. Maybe she can come redecorate my house for me. And, you know, I've got to say the funny part in this scene, which, of course, there's not much funny about it because Hermione is on fire, that Harry's first instinct is to stop, drop, and roll um, when he could be a wizard. And it kind of is a throwback to, in the Philosopher's Stone, the book, when uh, they fall down into the devil's snare. And uh, Hermione's like, why don't we have any fire? Why didn't we bring a match? Why don't, what do we do to light a fire? And Harry's like, well, you're a witch, aren't you? Just... And she remembers and, and conjures the fire, and it's the same thing here. You know, it's that first instinct of the muggle-born person is not to turn to magic, but to fall back on what they know, which in this case is stop, drop, and roll. That's another thing that I really like about this story is the fact that she's able to draw in elements from the other from canon and, and put them in so effortlessly, um, especially this, he's battling a dragon in the same manner that he had to for the golden egg and the Triwizard Tournament, only this time it's for the Horcrux, and I really like that, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a good way to kind of tie in loose ends. Yeah, probably not. I'll still give 10 points to Ravenclaw, though, so Ravenclaw are up 10, we're up 5, and I think it's time to get out of here, Chi, we've been doing this for 7 hours. Yeah, no kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> Alright, well... 
that's all I have to say for episode 6 through 11. Really episode 6 through 11? Whatever. <laughs> uh, chapters 6 through 11. Alright, we're out of here, guys. Next week, chapters 12 through 17. Did I do that right in my head? I think so. That is spectacular. Yes. We're really excited. <laughs> Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Alright, bye, guys. Bye-bye. In case we don't get Renna and or Phil from the past, we should make allowances so we're not, like, saying, hey, Renna and Phil are here, and really it's only Phil, so then we have to edit out the word Renna every time, so. There's a moment of silence that you must be chewing. Yeah, I'm chewing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's going to be like, pause. <laughs> Excellent point, Ryan. <laughs> no eating on the show. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Don't get it between the bat chick and her low main. Oh, for I'll take it. you out. Well, it works well when there's five of us. If it's just you and me, it's going to be somewhat noticeable if you're like eating dinner in the middle of the podcast. I can stop. No, I mean, I want, <laughs> I want you to eat your food, but it's just, it's going to be a lot more noticeable with two people than it was with five. Yeah. Yeah. That was great when we had five people. I could be like chomping away. I could take a 10 minute break. Yeah, it's like half an hour later. I'm like, where the hell is Chi? 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 Do you have any opinions, thoughts, or now it's like, now it's like now it's like me like um all right it's been eight minutes since we last heard from Chi let's uh, check today's headlines. <laughs> oh my goodness! There's a tornado ripping through Kansas. Well, that's it then. Good night. <laughs> oh God! What is this? This is episode seventeen. Seventeen? Uh, eighteen. This is eighteen. We did seventeen. Yes. No. No. When did that happen? All right. La 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 la. We just gonna have a sesame I still can't hear a word you're saying. La 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 la. Singing a song. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Oh, can you hear me? I'd like to hold it in my hand and keep it company. She's going to come back and she's going to ask me what song we're talking I about. Sing. I'm not going to remember. Like do, the do, world do. sing today. A song of peace that echoes on do, 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 and do, do, never do, do, goes away. Is that the right words? I don't know. Can you hear me? Woo-hoo! Can you hear I me? I get like elementary school bonus points. You can't hear me, can you? You got no idea what the Kumbaya, hell I'm talking about. My lord. Kumbaya. Still can't hear you. Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. Kumbaya. Insert words here. Kumbaya, my lord. This is the longest we've ever gone without right, hearing each other. It, Brad. There you go. Okay, here. <laughs> yeah. You can tell randomly in the blooper reel, Kumbaya, my lords, and they come in. All right. <laughs> what the hell was I saying before you lost me? Um, uh, he, something about a year like that, other. Okay, alright, let me go. If you've heard anything in this episode that you would like to comment on or would like to contribute to the show, you can email any of our staff at their names at potherfickweekly.com or you can email staff at potherfickweekly.com. If you would like to send in a voicemail message, you can either call 781 352 0643. And you can leave a voicemail up to two minutes in length, or you can email us 
an audio file to our email address, and we can play that on the show. You can also download a program called The Gizmo Project, and you can uh, contact us that way through your computer. For more information, visit fotherfickweekly.com.